Hi, everyone. It's Mike. And Stephen. And welcome to a special edition of Reoscar. Instead of doing our normal format, we are going to change things up like we did for Halloween. We're going to have a special episode where we discuss holiday movies that we have chosen and put into our own categories. So we're covering you know, Christmas movies and New Year's movies. The reason we're not doing any Thanksgiving, if you want to look at our Substack, you'll see that I wrote an article about why there are no good Thanksgiving movies. So we're not bothering with that. So we're just handling Christmas and New Year. This is really interesting for me because I feel like the horror bonus episode was kind of my thing because you were what you called a, a recovering scaredy cat and you didn't watch a lot of horror. Um, I am definitely not a Christmas movie guy. I'm not even really a Christmas guy or, or a holiday guy in general. So I was watching these a little begrudgingly, but I also ended up, and maybe this is the magic of these films, found myself on a Scrooge-like journey where I started out as this kind of curmudgeon about holiday films. And by the end, my wife was like, oh, you really have a different energy about you. You're more cheerful. You're more family oriented all of a sudden. And I kind of love all of these films. It's really amazing. I had just put my foot down about most of them, probably because of the popularity and would watch them, you know, if they were on in the background or something, but uh, now I'm all in. So I'm so happy to hear that. You. I feel like I'm your, uh, your Jacob Marley. Put, put you on a, a, a journey to, to discovering the beauty of holiday movies. It's a good holiday movie is 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 wonderful. And and it's something you can watch every year. I mean, for me, it's always been that way uh, in, in my family. We always had holiday movie traditions, specials or movies that we watched. And I've taken that and I've kind of do something similar with my own family where we have movies that we watch every year. And and it's it's just a nice touchstone, you know, as a family to have these reference points. So it, it's something I've always enjoy doing and and i'm a little more sentimental than you so i'm a sucker i've always been a sucker for a good holiday movie yeah it's interesting how much sentimentality and, and tradition is in all of these um even some of the newer ones that we'll talk about i think they a few of them have that kind of sentimentality to them and that's what makes them stick uh, i mean there are definitely a lot more uh in the 21st century that are kind of empty and maybe have a minimal story in there about Christmas or, you know, the feelings around Christmas and giving, but, and those have their place as well, but there are also a couple that really carry on that tradition. Yeah. There are some that use sentimentality as well to try to get away with making a terrible movie and thinking that they could use that to get away with it. Uh, it doesn't, that doesn't always work, but uh, when it works, it, it's still good. And I still watch, you know, two, three new holiday movies a year just to kind of check them out most of them are romantic comedies i mean amazon has some and netflix always drops some and they're not all good but i'll give them a shot see see if they'll they'll make it into the rotation it's interesting how a lot of these are kind of at their heart telling the same story and it's basically a christmas carol <laughs> i mean a lot of these sort of have the christmas carol as the foundation so it's kind of fun to see the different ways they go about dressing that up and making it kind of fresh and the same with the Miracle on 34th Street. I think that kind of shows itself in a few of the later ones as well. But yeah, it's really fun. I mean, it's it's uh, it's something that I did not expect, and I, I'm really excited to get into it. I will say that one of the originals was ruined for me in a way because I watched 
It's a Wonderful Life at the last minute and just threw on whichever version came up. And it was the colorized version, which oh, is a total nightmare. I mean, it is awful. <laughs> it really takes away from this amazing classic film to see it in this cheeseball color that is completely unnatural. Um, yeah. So I don't recommend that version. We can hold all of that against Ted Turner. I still remember when he colorized King Kong. That was traumatizing for me. Which, by the yeah. way, before we get into it, it said there's no good Thanksgiving movies. But back in the day, our Thanksgiving tradition, where they used to show King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young back to back every year, like on our local Channel 9, I think it was. And uh, those were the movies that were historically shown every Thanksgiving until Turner Network bought them and then put them behind a paywall. And then we couldn't see them anymore. Are those Thanksgiving stories or that's just how Not at all. Not in any way. For some reason, they just showed them on Thanksgiving. And then they would show March of the Wooden Soldiers. Like those were the the basic television movies that they showed every year. I don't know why. I, I have to look up why they made King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young Thanksgiving movies. But that's what they showed. That's strange, but uh, I kind of love it. That, that's yeah. interesting. Very strange. Uh, my, my mother hated it every year. Well, there were a couple of things on this list uh, that were my nominees that I used to watch every year. And now I hate that I watch them every year. And you're probably going to be mad that you had to watch them as well. All right. Well, why don't we run down the categories that we're going to talk about? We're going to start with the best modern Christmas movie. And there are quite a few of these, which kind of, I think, carry on sort of the tradition of the older ones. Then we're going to move on to best family Christmas movie, best classic Christmas movie, best version of a Christmas carol. This one is really interesting because there were a lot of uh, home runs with this category and a lot of swings and misses. So I can't so wait to talk about it. From and we just picked a few because there was just so many versions. And that can be said about all of these, really. I mean, there are so many of these films that fall into all of these categories that you just can't get to all of them. Um, then we're going to move on to best non-Christmas Christmas movie. That's another great one with a lot of debate uh, in the culture. Best oddball Christmas movie and best New Year's movie. So we're really covering a lot of ground here. And like I said, there are so many possible entries into all of these that we can't get to all of them and we might get mail about things that we've left out but there's always next year so this is something like horror and halloween that we're going to keep going with because there's just so much to to pull from so we just started out this way and and uh are going to focus on what we're focused on and then we're going to expand on it next time so let's uh we're starting with best modern christmas movie what were your nominees for this one so my two nominations were Family Man, the Cage movie, and The Ref, which starred Dennis Leary and Kevin Spacey. Great. And mine were National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation and 2016's Office Christmas Party, which I think could fall under a couple of these categories. It's definitely oddball, but I put it here. So um, yeah, the, the Family Man is interesting. I vaguely recall seeing this before but didn't really live with it like i did this time and it it was a lot of fun i mean it, it has the sentimentality and it's really cool it's kind of a christmas carol in a way right like my, well my wife made a really good observation about this one kind of what she said is it's kind of like an inverse it's a wonderful life where in that one you get the idea of his life and then he gets to see what it's like without him whereas in this one he gets to see what his life is like making a choice that puts him in it, put him in a, puts him in a different way, and then gets to reflect on that. And I think that's you know, a pretty good observation, and that, and that is kind of how it breaks down. 
Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. And it it really has uh, a lot of the sort of the hallmarks of 2000 in it. Finance is one big thing. And then it just has this New York feel to it that, uh, oh, and I'll say that it's interesting that a lot of these films revolve around money in one way or another, which kind of makes me think about the consumerist aspect of Christmas and, and how it's being perpetuated uh, either directly or indirectly in a lot of these films, but uh, the family yeah, man, that, for that's sure. a good point because I think that, that, you know, we, cause we live now, we only see things through our own lens, but the idea of commercializing Christmas and, you know, the, the spirit of Christmas versus money, what you buy people has been a theme throughout most things all going all the way back to Charlie Brown Christmas made in the fifties which is about Christmas yeah. being commercialized. And that was in the fifties. And I think that so that, that you're right. The idea of money kind of ruining the idea of Christmas has run through so many stories and themes. And, and this one for sure. I mean, he, he's a, a man who lives this sort of superficial life about getting ahead and, and just making a ton of money and then sort of has a different reality put upon him and, and, of course, with the spirit of these kinds of films, he learns that money isn't everything. Interesting ending too, where it's not quite tied up neatly. Um, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Good performances. Yeah, this is actually one that I, I do tend to watch every year. It's kind of become my my modern go-to. Uh, my wife and I have a few movies we watch every year. And this is this is one that I always liked and we ended up watching it together and, we, and we, we love it. I think it just, it's a really nice Holly movie and said we love it's a wonderful life too and because this kind of mirrors that similar ideas i think don Cheadle's fantastic in it i just enjoy that character kind of like a yeah like a ghost of christmas christmas present so to speak you know he comes in and, and uh it's fun how they introduce him and i just like that character uh jeremy piven doing he's always been a good second banana kind of guy you know did that for john mm-hmm. Cusack for a lot of years and he's always been good at playing that role uh and Nicolas Cage it's just a good performance by him um and and him and Taylor Leone have really good chemistry just a a nice overall Hollywood yeah it is a good performance by Cage a little a little more subdued than than uh (laughs) what he'd been doing prior to this because this came out in 2000 and and uh in the lead up to it he was doing things like Gone in 60 Seconds and Con Air and The Rock and Right. Uh, when he's, you know, the, his, the rich version of himself, it's similar to what you'd seen him in. So you think, oh boy, you know, is this where this is going? But then, of course, it takes a turn and, and uh, moves off in a different direction. So, yeah, The Family Man is, is a, it's a pretty great film. And uh, so next up, The Ref, the 1994 Ted Demi film. I know you really Did you ever seen The Ref? I had seen it um, early on, maybe when it came out. So I didn't have much memory of it. But, uh, I really enjoyed getting back into it and I saw quite a lot in there to like. So yeah, I was happy to watch it again. So this is interesting because I don't really love, uh, I like more traditional holiday movies. I think that's just kind of how I lean. And this one's a bit of a black comedy and it's almost something that I might not like, but there's something about it. There's, there's just like a thread through it that makes it work. And I'm not even sure that I can put my finger on what it is and why I've always enjoyed it because it's, pretty pitch black and everyone's pretty nasty until you get to where you're going of course because it's a holiday movie but uh i think part of it is it, it 
I think a lot of this movie depends on how much you enjoy Dennis Leary doing Dennis Leary things, especially mid nineties yeah. Dennis Leary. So either you like it or you don't. And this was kind of the movie right before Kevin Spacey really blew up. I know it's not great to talk about Kevin Spacey anymore. The crazy part is I'm not even sure he shows up on, on the cast on this online anymore. It's like they kind of disappeared him from the internet. So, you know, however we want to feel about that, but he made swimming with sharks and the ref in this scene year 94. And then the following year, usual suspects comes out and Kevin Spacey kind of blows up. But, uh, He's excellent in it. I mean, regardless of what he is as a human being, uh, he's really good in this movie. Uh, and him and Judy Davis have a really great chemistry of hating each other that, that really makes the movie work. Yeah, they do. I I, I think everybody in it, Christine Baranski, uh, even uh, uh, young J.K. Simmons, I can't really tell. Uh, yeah. I mean, Glynis Johns. This was one of two movies she made. She made this one in 94, and then While You Were Sleeping the following year, with two different parts for her. But she's fantastic in both. Just uh, like a mini Blindness Johns resurgence in the mid-90s, which is interesting. Uh, of course, I think I mentioned this in a different pop, but I remember her all the way back in Mary Poppins. So uh, it's always nice to see her. And in this one, she plays just, just so good at being a terrible, terrible person. It's great. I also shout out to Robert Ridgely, who uh, I remember as the Colonel in Boogie Nights. Uh, it was really cool to see him as well. But I think what maybe makes you like this so much is that it, or at least it does for me, is that it's kind of steeped in, even though uh, it's a heightened example, but the, the real life tensions of the holidays and the stress around it and getting together with family. And it's, it's, really does a good job of, of just taking that and, and escalating it uh, in a way that isn't generally going to happen. But uh, throwing Dennis Leary into the mix too, uh, I mean, I feel like he just operates at a level of high tension all the time. So he's kind of perfect to put in there. Um, right. And, and but, the trick of be, because of the way the movie structured where he kidnaps them and they can't leave. So where you'd have situations where people would leave a room because they don't want to scream at each other they're forced to not leave the room. So they have to deal with things in the moment, which is a nice mm -hmm. trick in the movie to, to keep that story rolling the way it has to go. Things have to blow up. And part of it has to blow up because they can't actually leave the room to, to vent somewhere else. So Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of um, season three of The Bear. There's an episode that's all set at Christmas dinner. And just, I mean, the, the tension builds to such a point where uh, there's, you know, a huge explosion, but um, it really kind of reminded me of that. And uh, someone who grew up in an Italian family, an Italian American family, that episode of the bear actually gave me PTSD. Like that was <laughs> so incredibly tense and to the bone and just mm -hmm. so recognizable in certain ways. I mean, not as bad as that is, but yeah, that that's, that was a hell of an episode too. Yeah, and so if if that's your history uh, to some degree, then this film probably makes a lot of sense. Like it's not that far fetched, so that's pretty cool. And you know, it's a Ted Demi film. It, it it falls into this area where Ted Demi is living at this point because he would go on to do Beautiful Girls in two years, and just the the snowy town sort of almost like it's a Wonderful Life kind of set. And I love that. I mean, I, I love this this era of Ted Demi. And I mean, he was kind of all over the place too. He actually 
directed a lot of um, Dennis Leary's comedy specials after this and, and possibly even before, I think. But um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cool film. I, I really enjoyed revisiting it almost for the first time, basically. Yeah. Well, you said he directed, it, he directed uh, Dennis Leary's like breakout performance. I mean, no cure for cancer was basically the standup routine that was made no movie that put Leary on the map. And Ted Demi directed that. That was what, like ninety-two. So yeah, it would make sense that he would cast him in this movie, and the movie kind of is centered around Dennis Leary's personality. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so that doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, he also directed uh, the MTV spots that Dennis Leary did in the early nineties. So I guess I that's didn't kind know of that. Really that's interesting. But that makes perfect sense now. I think you hear me knocking, and I think yeah. I'm coming in and I'm bringing whatever. Yeah, I remember those. And by the way, this was released in March. Which is probably why it tanked. That's fair. Yeah, yeah I'm but glad I, I mean, it has people who've actually watched the ref. It's one of those movies that just kind of disappeared in a time, which is why I dragged it back for this. I thought I was making you watch it for the first time. I mean, it was basically the first time I had. The only memory I had of it was like the the candles on the head. So it was my first time. So thank you. Uh, Favorite line in the whole movie is when he says to his mother, "Next year we're going to buy you." Uh, a wooden cross so you can nail yourself to it every time you feel unappreciated, which is, is just, yeah. it's really great. Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of good lines. Like she, she gets the grandson boxers, I think. And she's like, I bought you Husky. <laughs> uh, or a slipper sock size medium. Yeah. It's a good one. There's a lot of, a lot of good lines. Anyway. Yeah. It's a really fun film. All right. Let's move on to Christmas vacation. Uh, it's fun. I, don't have the same regard I used to have for it after watching it again. Um, I kind of see it differently now for some reason, but it was nice to revisit it. I think it's it's one that I've seen a lot during the holidays, almost as much as A Christmas Story. It seems to be on a lot just because it's it's sort of contemporary and family oriented for the most part. But as I rewatched it, I thought, my God, there's so much happening in this that it's really hard to get to kind of the center of it and uh as a john john hughes screenplay so it's it's really uh sentimental and and nice but i think it's a little too chaotic and i don't know why this year watching it chevy chase was just so irritating that i don't know if i'll revisit it again so that's really interesting that you bring that up because I revisited this movie a couple of years ago and we were looking for you know movies to watch as a family and I watched this and really didn't like it. It just didn't hit with me and kind of annoyed me in general. Uh, and again, it's, it's interesting you see Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, you know, John Hughes working, trying to work at a holiday thing. And then this movie, which just feels like it's too much. And then it all kind of leads to Home Alone where it's just the right kind of chaos and... Uh, family thing. It's almost like he hits this this the sweet spot of what he's looking for in a holiday movie. But yeah, I, I never loved Christmas Vacation, and I think like the ref is based on how you feel about Dennis Leary. Christmas Vacation is a lot of how you feel about the cousin Eddie character, which I never loved in the first place. <laughs> uh, so that's part of why I never loved the movie that much. I think he's the only one who's really bringing it in this film. <laughs> See, that's interesting. It, there's some gags that work for me that I think are, are pretty funny, and of course. Uh, it's always good to see Julia Louis-Dreyfus in anything, especially when she's being mean. But um, overall, yeah, this one never really works for me. It's interesting you mentioned Home Alone because uh, John Hughes actually approached Christopher Columbus about directing this. And he met with Chevy Chase 
Um, he actually did go on to do some second unit directing on it. And some of that's still in the film, but uh, he met with Chevy Chase initially and no surprise, Chevy was such an asshole to him that he did not want to do the film. And John Hughes convinced him to come on anyway, but the treatment just got worse and worse on set. So he dropped out and then John Hughes ultimately gave him the Home Alone script to direct instead uh, and brought on Jeremiah Chechik for this. So uh, that's more Chevy Chase lore that's not favorable for him. Uh, wow. Yeah. Is there? A, it feels like every story with Chevy Chase ends up with him uh, being a dick and people hating him. I don't know why they didn't cast him in a Christmas Carol at some point. That would have been perfect. Again, though, I, I think this film is fine, but it's just, it's a little full. You can really see sort of the heart at the middle of it, but there's just so much clutter. Like so many people in one house, they're all cranky, you know. And then you have Chevy Chase doing the same gags over and over. The, the, one, the one saving grace for me were uh, Uncle Lewis and Aunt Bethany, the the old couple who were just fantastic. And what I learned is that Aunt Bethany, who's played by Mae Questel, uh, was actually the voice of Betty Boop. That is a really fun, useless fact. Thank you for that. I did not know that. Yep. That's about all I have in my head. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we can kind of breeze over this one. Okay, on my part. Um, yeah. Didn't quite hold up the way I Watch it once and you'll probably put it away. Uh, it's It's not doesn't rise to the uh, holiday classic. And then the last nominee in this category, I picked Office Christmas Party, which is fairly new and, and sort of out of left field. It's from 2016. Uh, and it's it's a bit of a strange film set in Chicago. It's, it's uh, Jason Bateman and TJ Miller and Olivia Munn and Jennifer Aniston. Um, all, well, Jennifer Aniston is kind of the antagonist and everybody else is trying to save this company from her as a CEO. And it's fun. It, it felt like a throwback to like an 80s movie to me where the kids have to save something. And it was adult themed in a way, like uh, there's some naughty stuff in there. So it has a very modern approach to the holidays, but it also has that 80s approach, which was sort of raunchy and a little heartwarming at the same time. It's basically an Apatow film without having Judd Apatow attached to it. But yeah, I, I see this one a lot and I, I always watch it because it's kind of fun. What did you think of it? Yeah, you, you hit it on the head. That's what I was thinking when I was watching it too. It had a very 80s feel. And um, we'll get to some later that try to do a similar 80s feel that I think fail. But this one, I, I mean, I actually really enjoy it. I think it's very funny. I think part of it is just because the actors in it are enjoyable to watch. I really love Jason Bateman doing Jason Bateman things. Uh, he's just that very particular version of dry that I enjoy. And when you have the right people playing off of him, uh, it's always a good time for me. And T.J. Miller is 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 really good in this movie as well. Uh, it's fun to see Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston play a villain. Uh, Kate McKinnon is weird as usual, which is good. I mean, Sam Richardson, who ends up being in hundreds and hundreds of things, and it is funny in all of them. Uh, his character is, is good in this. So, so, yeah, it's even got Jimmy Butler in it, for God's sakes. I mean, that's... Uh, yeah. It's a hell of a thing because he was playing for the Bulls at the time. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I this movie made me laugh and, and it, it worked for me. Uh, I'd seen it years ago and hadn't seen it in a while and uh, was pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Good. So it's directed by Josh Gordon and Will Speck, who have done a few things that I kind of liked, which 
specifically Blades of Glory, the <laughs> the uh, Will Ferrell ice skating film. But they also did the switch with Bateman and Aniston prior to this. But they also directed some episodes of a show on Netflix that I really enjoyed called Flaked with uh, Will Arnett. And it, it's all set in Venice Beach. Um, if you haven't seen the show, it, it, I think it's two seasons and then it got canceled. But it's uh, it kind of has the same sensibilities of this film. Uh, it's kind of sweet and slightly dark. But uh, yeah, I think uh, Josh Gordon and Holspec are a, a pretty good team. And this is uh, definitely a great example of that. So Well, I mean, Josh Gordon also directed Lyle Lyle Crocodile. So, I mean. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's say who what we picked for this. Um, what did you have for the best modern Christmas movie as as your winner? I picked the one that falls into my. I would watch this every year, and since I actually watch The Family Man just about every year, that's an, that's an easy pick for me. Uh, and as we'll we'll see as we go along with this, yes, I am a sentimental fool when it comes to holiday movies, and this and this one just uh, presses all those buttons for me. So it's Family Man all the way. Yeah, I, I was a little surprised in um, what I picked for this and, and going through and thinking about the, the films I like. And I mean, I think my favorite of these is Office Christmas Party, just because it's a little more modern. But I also think that in going on this journey of watching these Christmas films, I've sort of found that Christmas tradition that you were talking about. And I think oh, that... The spirit of Christmas! I did. And I think that the family man really adheres to that kind of value that these Christmas films have put forward um, since the beginning of film. So much to my own surprise, I'm with you. I, I'm also picking the family man. I love it. Yeah. That's... For your heart growing two sizes as we speak. It's really amazing uh, what a transformation this, this uh, year has been for me with these films. All right, well, let's move on to best family Christmas movie. I picked... For these, The Santa Claus and Emma Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Um, what were your picks for it? So I'll just start this by saying this was the category that I chose because uh, I do have two youngish kids and I'm stuck watching a ton of crap family Christmas movies every year. Uh, so I kind of wanted to drill down in, in ones that were actually enjoyable. So uh, th that was why I... I through this category in there. So the two that I chose were Elf and Home Alone. Excellent choices. This is a category that could be populated by a million films from the 30s forward. So it was tough to narrow it down. Let's start with Elf. What are your thoughts on it? It's a great pick. It is almost a perfect holiday movie. That's my thought on Elf. And the crazy part is that every year I watch it, I actually think I enjoy it more. So this is a bit of a spoiler alert for where I'm going at the end of this. But Elf is just hands down the most rewatchable of all of these movies both my kids and they're like six years apart in age they don't agree on much but they both agree that they love to watch elf every year uh it's one of the few things i can get my teenagers to sit down and watch with us uh so th that just says everything to me about just how well made this film is it, it, it it's obviously made by someone who is of our age because it perfectly captures the old Christmas specials that we watched, you know, when he's on, when he's at the North Pole, all of that look obviously recreates the Rankin and Bass cartoons yeah. we used to watch when we were kids. And it captures that perfectly. It's very sentimental, but it's still got a hard edge when he comes to New York. So it's like that little bit of bite to it. 
but it's an incredibly sentimental movie. James Conn's perfectly cast as as, as the uh, <laughs> the, the man needs to to understand the true meaning of Christmas. And I can't imagine anyone else playing Buddy but Will Ferrell. It's just kind of the quintessential Will Ferrell role that I think he'd been building up to is every year up to that point. And I will just say that I give him a ton of credit for turning down a sequel. There, there was a story that I'd read a few years ago where they obviously made a lot of money. It was very successful. And they offered him a lot of money, like $20 million, something like that, to make a sequel to Elf. Mm-hmm. And he turned it down because his feeling was that if you went back to it, it would ruin the spirit of the original movie. And you could never recreate it. And he was 100% right. And I give him all the credit for that because Elf just kind of stands as the pinnacle for me of like a, the modern family Christmas movie. I think it works on every level. Yeah, it's really good. I see it almost as like a remake of Miracle on 34th Street, even to the to the level where you have a Christmas worker in a department store who has to prove he's real. Um, and it's about inspiring the Christmas spirit. So so the the villain is basically like cynicism in both of these films. And right. And uh, there are a lot of amazing parallels there and uh, of everything we watched. I don't know. It felt like the perfect holiday film, um, at least in in like post 2000 Hollywood. And a, a lot of things that we're going to cover predate that. But uh, as far as like a modern classic, whatever that means, I feel like this is the closest thing to it. I 100% agree. Yeah. And you can imagine how many ways it can go wrong, you know, when you're watching it. And as people of the probably the most cynical generation, you know, most of our entertainment is tinged with cynicism uh, that we that we grew up on. So watching a movie that kind of flies in the face of that cynicism was, was really refreshing and it, and it works. And, and it's it, I'm most receptive to it in Christmas movies. So it just gets me right where it's supposed to. And uh, that, that's why I, I really love it. And it, I, I give it extra points for taking that complete like wide-eyed anti-cynic approach that Buddy the Elf has and placing him in New York City, which is like the most cynical place. So to see someone <laughs> with those cynicism navigate those streets that you and I navigate all the time uh, was really cool. I mean, it, it made me look at New York City in a different way than I do when I'm grumbling to get into work every day. So um, that was, it was really great. I, I, I think this is something that would be on every year. I don't have kids, but it's something that I'm gonna watch every year nonetheless going forward my youngest son already asked me last night when we're watching elf so uh he he's ready to go you know it's, it's that time of year so he he he's only uh nine so he, he already looks forward to it every year the the one observation that i'll make and this is a theory that's easily debunked but you have essentially mary steamburgen playing will ferrell's mother and we've seen that in another film so my question is is Elf a prequel to Step Brothers? Uh, is 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 Buddy? Does Buddy become uh, the character in Step Brothers? Is, is that is that where he settles in once once he once he moves to, to the states? Maybe I think I'd, so. I'd be willing to go with that. Buddy is Brennan Huff. That's that's my uh, that's my theory. All right. On that absurd note, we can move on to Home Alone, uh, sort of the mother of kids' Christmas movies and. This is another one that just, you know, it checks all the boxes. It's it's sentimental. It's it's sort of like empowering for kids, although I think 
Kevin's a little too unafraid of uh, these bandits breaking into his home as a 10 year old or whatever he is. But um, it just, you know, it has a good message. It has that John Hughes script. So it has that heart to it. And uh, it's hard to just <laughs> doubt this film. It, it's so good. I haven't watched it in years and going back to it, I really just loved it. Um, great message, great cinematography in particular, because it's sort of designed by uh, Julio Macat to show the world from Kevin's perspective. And I think that's really neat. It's uh, something that's maybe not conscious to the viewer, but it's really cool. And it makes the world seem like a kind of a scarier place and it puts you puts you into his uh, shoes. So great, uh, just a great film. And you can speak to the diehard aspect of it, but uh, it's, it's, it's really fun. Yeah, it's, it's very much a uh, diehard for children yeah, kind of movie. Uh, so interestingly enough, I just read that, that uh, Macaulay Culkin just got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And uh, so Catherine O'Hara was there. And I thought that was really nice. And um, it made me surprised actually he hadn't gotten one yet. But but when you go back and watch Home Alone, it's very easy to understand why everyone loved Macaulay Culkin at this time. Because yeah. you're putting a movie on on a kid's shoulders. I mean, a 10 year old or whatever he was at the time. And he has to carry the entire emotional weight of that movie. And he's just really engaging and entertaining to watch. Uh, his comic timing is, is perfect. I remember I saw him in Uncle Buck before Home Alone. Yeah. Even younger. And even then, his comic timing was just surprisingly perfect. And so you just One kind of. One of my favorite films. Yeah. And, and, and so he, and he's just got this wise ass nature where you probably shouldn't like him that much because he's because the whole opening part of the movie everyone's just incredibly mean to each other but he still ends up being likable and carries off all the action scenes you know really well he's like a, he's a mini uh john mcclain so it's uh it, it's cool and, and, and when i watched it and i know that's just probably what they're going for was it felt like watching an old looney tunes cartoon it was very roadrunner wiley coyote-esque and and the scene that reflected in, in an actual live action movie is always fun. So there's just tons of sight gags of things blowing up in people's faces and all kinds of stuff, but no one actually dying, which is good. So all of these little elements for growing up on those kind of cartoons and, and everything, it, it's always entertaining. Uh, this is another one that we watch every year as a family and my kids like it. I, I can't imagine a kid not liking a movie where they get to see the kid win and uh, you know, beat up grownups. So that, that seems like a win right there. It has that John Hughes script, which feels like almost like Kevin's talking like a teenager, like he's right. 17 or 18. But it also has like an Amblin feel to it with this kind of whimsy and, and like this kid is, you know, doing his thing and is very independent. So I think John Hughes making a Spielberg movie is kind of like what this feels like to me. And that's that's sort of a winning combination. I mean, it's it's a it's a great film. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point that you make. And, and with Chris Columbus as well, because, I mean, he started off as a screenwriter and actually wrote Gremlins, which we'll get to. So in, in a way, it's, it's yeah, it's almost like a Spielberg movie through the prism of these two guys, one who likes broad, you know, slapstick comedy and Chris Columbus, who has a bit of a dark nature. He also wrote The Goonies. So, so you kind of have them trying to make a holiday movie through that prism of who they are. And so you get something that falls right in the middle. And I think that's why it doesn't fall either way into being too dark or being overly sentimental. It kind of splits the difference. And, and that's probably what makes it work so well. 
Yeah, it, and it really does. I mean, it's uh, it's it's just a great film. And <laughs> even though I nominated this next film, it, it certainly uh, doesn't hold up to the same standard as Home Alone. But anyway, I did nominate it, and it's The Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Uh, is this one that you watch every year? We watch it almost every year. Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. It it made it made the list, so uh, so don't feel embarrassed about it. Yeah. There are a lot of really, really bad family Christmas movies, and this one's not so bad. So we, we usually, when we're getting towards the end, when we're running on fumes of Christmas movies, we'll usually end up here. But we will not watch the sequels. Let's just be very clear about that. The Santa Claus yeah. 2 and 3 and whatever the heck that series is on Disney+, Plus, that stuff does not exist. We don't watch any of that stuff. I can only imagine it getting worse. I haven't seen anything beyond this one, but... Um... You know, I'm I'm kind of bagging on this, but it wasn't terrible. I mean, it was kind of fun. Uh, I think it was Tim Allen's first film, right? So I think it might have uh, been. The premise is fantastic. It's a and, and that's partially why it works because the premise is so interesting and and just a smart idea. You know, what happens if Santa dies? You know, it, it, the idea of where that goes is just a really fun premise to start a movie with, even though. It starts with Santa dying, which is crazy, by the way. That That is a crazy <laughs> way to actually start a holiday movie. But once you get past that initial part, it, uh, it's a pretty fun idea for a movie. But at the heart of it, it's really like many of these movies in that it, it depends on somebody finding the Christmas spirit. Like that's that's sort of central to this like it is to all of these films. And uh I think it's it's another way to wrap up that notion of of somebody needs to find this Christmas spirit in order for this holiday to to be so great and yeah it's fun it was, this was 1994 so I don't know if there were, were a lot of other things out around then that were holiday films but yeah it was kind of unique and an interesting uh, approach so yeah I can see why it would get traction and and go on especially with kids I would imagine. Yeah, they, they, I mean, my kids enjoyed it. Uh, I mean, the, the Tim Allen stuff, that does not hold up very well. That that whole thing just doesn't track very well nowadays. Yeah, there's, and there's not that much of it in the movie, so it's okay. You can just get past that. Nice performance by Judge Reinhold playing a, a psychiatrist who thinks he's insane, which is kind of nice. So yeah, it, it makes the list. It, it's not the very first movie that we'll watch, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. It, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. Uh, all right, the last one. Very excited about this because I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, it's it's a Muppet joint from Jim Henson, 1977, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Uh, had you seen this before? I was going to say, that's the craziest part about it. I had never seen this. Somehow this never hit my radar, which is pretty shocking to me. Uh, but no, I watched it for the first time. And what did and, you think uh, of it? It's just nice to have discovered something in the Henson universe that I hadn't seen. So I think I just immediately liked it for that reason, just to be able to go back to that world and, and see something old with fresh eyes was, was fun. And you can just see so many of the elements that are being worked out to kind of get to the Muppet movie and all these other things. I mean, this is, I think, just like a year before the Muppet movie came out. And what I thought was interesting was that Paul Williams wrote a bunch of the songs for this, for Emma Daughter's Back Christmas. Uh, Paul Williams it was is a was a singer-songwriter, songwriter really, and starting a few movies, most classic in Smokey and the Bandit, where he played Little Enos. But so he wrote these songs, but he ends up writing the Rainbow Connection in the Muppet movie, you know, a year later. Yep. 
So it's just fun to watch this and kind of see this as the as the seed of where they're going with the Muppets. It's almost like this was a dry run of kind of seeing what they could do and make happen and leads to the Muppet movies, which I've always loved. So that part of it was really fun for me. But overall, it's just a very simple holiday story, again, about a poor family trying to discover the true meaning of Christmas. And and nice. I mean, the, the uh, I like the, the bad boy villains who end up kind of being... Pretty good, but surprisingly good as a band, which you did not expect. So that that was fun. The River Bottom Nightmare Band. Yeah, exactly. Uh, With uh, Chuck the Bear, who was voiced by Frank Oz, which I always love. And that's the thing you can so, definitely hear the voices of, of, the, of the people that you know uh, doing the characters. You know where Jim Henson's doing a voice or Frank Oz. So so yeah, it was just a nice nostalgia trip for me that, that I that I ended up very much enjoying. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, this is one that I I watch every year. I own it on uh, DVD because I don't know if you can. I'm sure you can see it online now. Uh, you probably watched it that way, but um, I just wanted a physical copy of it because this was a, a very important, uh, I don't know if you call it a film, but a very important story to me as a kid. I think it came out in 1977. So I was I was like four, three years old then. <laughs> but, and I don't think I saw it that year. But if I did, I certainly wouldn't remember it. But this was one of those things that was on HBO ad nauseum every year. Um, and it was actually sort of double featured with something we're going to talk about later uh, with a little less regard than this. But I would watch this over and over again every year. And it just really stuck with me because, it, like you said, it's such a simple story and it's just so heartfelt and sweet. And uh, there's such a basic message to it. And the music is great. And it's Muppets, you know, like it, it, at the height of Muppets. So. What's not to love? I mean, it's. Uh, I'm really happy to get to talk about this one because it's not something that a lot of people have seen or that they're willing to discuss. It's a nice segue for me to bring up something that I actually watch every year. This Muppets related is another thing that kind of has fallen by the wayside. A lot of people watch the uh, Muppet Christmas Carol. As a matter of fact, my wife and her family that was a movie they used to watch all the time. They love it. But there was a special in the '90s called the Muppet Family Christmas, and it's actually the only special that includes everyone in the Henson universe. So it includes the Muppets, Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street shows up. There's a Muppet Baby segment in it. Like it's everything that Henson had done. And all of these characters are in one special in one place. And I, I've, oh, I, I love it You know more, more than I probably even should. I just enjoy it. I, I mean, I try to force my kids to watch it. They don't even want to watch it anymore. But I still watch it myself. It doesn't matter. It's just everything you love about the Muppets. It's the last thing that Henson really worked on, I believe, until until he passed away, which wasn't too long after that had come out. So a lot of nostalgia for me in that show. And it's something that's not even available. Like you can't, I don't even know if you can buy it on DVD anymore. It, it's very hard to find, but they do still have it on YouTube. So if anyone's interested in watching more Muppet-related stuff after Eminem's Jug Band Christmas, I would highly recommend you track down Muppet Family Christmas and watch it. Because if you love Henson and Muppet stuff, it, it's it's really, really fantastic. There's a few really great songs in it. There's a good version of Jingle Bell Rock, which is a song I don't even really love that much. That's good. There's a good uh, joke about an icy spot on the floor. There's just a lot of good stuff in it. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen that. I'll, I'll have to look for it. I know my wife would love it. It sounds really interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, if I don't you know if it's, it's, it's just great because you get to see them all interact in, in one way or another. And uh, it's still Frank Oz is still involved. So everybody's still in it. And um, 
it's one of the last times you get to see all of them working on Muppet-related content together. I don't really know why it disappeared, to, to be honest. I'm not sure why it's not bigger than it is. I don't know what happened exactly, but hopefully this will make some people go back and find it. Maybe it's it has it's a rights issue. The Henson stuff had a lot of rights issues. Um, I, in fact, I remember <laughs> when uh, when I lived in Seattle, I was uh, there's this amazing video store called Scarecrow Video, and they have everything. And it's the kind of place where the films are cataloged by director instead of like genre or whatever. Um, so it's amazing, and I really wanted to see Fraggle Rock when I lived there. This is like 2000, 2001, but there was this huge thing over the the Henson rights because I think he had just died and the rights to all of his work were kind of up in the air. Um, but I was able to get a copy of like season one of Fraggle Rock or something on VHS, but because of the rights issues, they weren't producing anymore. So it was like a really coveted artifact. And so I think I had to put down a $200 deposit to watch Fraggle Rock <laughs> during the Henson rights debacle because it was just so hard to come by and nobody knew what the future held. So all of this amazing work was like stuck somewhere. Um, thank goodness it worked out and, you know, everything's available now. But uh, that was that was a harrowing time. Yeah, I guess maybe Muppet Family Christmas got lost somewhere in there and it's never found its way out. So uh yeah, if, if you can find it, seek it out. It, it is on YouTube. I watch it. I mean, I, I have it on uh, VHS that I actually watch every year, but it is on YouTube. So anyway, so that's a total side sidetrack our thing here. But uh, so what did you pick as your favorite family Christmas movie? Well, there were three in particular that, that really I wrestled with. Um, obviously, the Santa Claus was not one of them, <laughs> <laughs> nor would it be for anybody. Uh Emmett Otter has such a sentimental meaning to me, um, and I love it so much. Home Alone has, you know, it, it's it's almost like a perfect holiday film to me uh, from a kid's perspective and from a, sort of a modern thing. But I, I think I'm giving it to Elf because it's just, it's it's a classic film in a shiny new package. And it, just like uh, The Family Man, it kind of has that, that old school feel to it, but it's very modern. So yeah, Elf gets my... Uh, my family Christmas movie Oscar. Well, we, we already know where I stand. So I, I'm a hundred percent in agreement with Elf. It, it almost makes watching family movies for Christmas bearable. I think we're really seeing the, the change I've undergone this holiday season being illustrated here because you and I are agreeing on what we're voting on. It, it's pretty amazing. This, this is <laughs> let, let, let's we'll try, see let's try the seems. next one and see if we, if we can keep this, this run going. So the next one is the best version of a Christmas Carol. And we, we pick some random versions of a Christmas Carol, some that we've liked and just, uh, again, they've made a version almost every single year. So we just picked a few that we thought were particularly representative of a period of time. Uh, and, and we decided to go with those. So the ones that I picked were version from 1951, which is considered pretty uh, classic version. Uh, I picked mm -hmm. version from 1984, which was actually a, a TV movie with George C. Scott. Mm -hmm. uh, the thought of George C. Scott as as Scrooge just seemed too great to not to not look at. And the third one that I picked, just as a bonus one, is Mickey's Christmas Carol, which was an animated um, animated Disney version of a Christmas Carol that was made in the 80s, which is near and dear to my heart. So I threw that one in there. 
Yeah, and I picked uh, Scrooged, the 1988 Bill Murray film directed by Richard Donner. And (laughs) so I'll preface this one by saying I rewatched Emmett Otter and I have such a love for it to this day and I will until I'm dead. But my second pick is what was paired with that every year as kind of a double feature on HBO at least twice a week. Um, and as much as I love Emmett Otter, I love this version of A Christmas Carol as well. Um, and it's Rich Little's A Christmas Carol. And I don't know if people even know who Rich Little is, but he's an impressionist um, from the 70s and 80s. And uh, he, he put together this version of A Christmas Carol playing almost all the parts. So, so for people who don't know, so Rich Little plays all the parts, but he plays them as people that he does impressions of. So yes. he plays Ebenezer Scrooge, but he plays Ebenezer Scrooge as W.C. Fields playing Ebenezer Scrooge. And Bob Cratchit is Paul Lind, and Johnny Carson is Fred the Nephew. And th- this is what this is like. The Ghosts of, of Christmas are like Humphrey Bogard and Peter Falk is Columbo and stuff. So that's what's going on here. It's Rich Little doing impressions of people playing these characters. So you need to get the full picture to really understand what's going on here. It's almost inappropriate to watch it today because all of the characters you just listed, I mean, were any of them alive past 1990? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's partially why like Rich Little was like Johnny Carson's favorite impressionist because all of his impressions were like people from the 1940s. I, I have no idea. Like I never understood the whole Rich Little thing. I thought every Rich Little impression sounded like Rich Little. So we were never yeah. really fans of Rich Little. Uh, so mm. I watched this for the very first time. I had never seen this before. And holy crap, was this something to see? <laughs> Thank God it's only a half hour <laughs> because it did not hold up for me. My God, this now this is something I haven't seen in almost 40 years. And in my mind, it's beloved. But revisiting it, I wanted to punch myself in the face for ever liking this. Look, um, sometimes, sometimes you can't go home. Very few things do I watch from my childhood and think it doesn't hold up. Or if it doesn't hold up, it's not that bad. But this was like, I wish I could erase it from my mind now. Uh, All I remember from being a kid is, and this is one of the gags in it, is that he walks into a dark house and his nose is lit up like Rudolph because he's W.C. Fields. And uh, that's like the memory that sticks in my head for 40 years and what made me recommend this, basically. Um, And I am am utterly regretful (laughs) and apologetic to you for having to make you watch it. Well, also, also his nose is red because he's a drunkard, which W.C. Fields used to play a lot of people who were drunk back in the day. And that's right, how right. he died too. So he plays Scrooge as someone who's drunk all the time. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a lot of strange choices. I'm not going to lie. Rich Little, Rich Little made some bold choices in this. And not all of them panned out. I, th- I think that's fair to say. He played Tiny Tim as Truman Capote playing Tiny Tim. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. This is a lot of things. He played oh. Mrs. Cratchit as Gene Stapleton playing Edith Bunker as <laughs> Mrs. Cratchit. All right? It's a lot. I would say it's really of its time, but it's even not. I mean, it's even W.C. Fields and Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I, no, it's not of its time. Not. 
77. So whatever time is in Rich Little's mind. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there. And let me just say, I mean, most of these impressions weren't even terrible, but his Humphrey Bogart was god awful. Mm-hmm. That was embarrassing. Really his Humphrey Bogart and his Peter Falk were both pretty bad. The rest of them, yeah, just ignoring Gene Stapleton altogether. But the rest of them actually weren't so bad. But those two weren't weren't good at all. I mean, this is clearly not for children, <laughs> and uh, just the the choice to go with Paul Lynn <laughs> just blows my mind. Yeah, uh, revisiting it, I, I had no memory of that, and, and rewatching it, I was shocked. Well, because it's it's always nice because it's the holiday season, and we try to say things that are charitable. I will say that he played the two solicitors who come to see Scrooge as Laurel and Hardy, and yeah was amusing that was it that was like the only part in the whole special that i found amusing and i thought his impressions were good yeah th- this one boy oh boy uh, uh kind of glad i rewatched it again just so i can get that false memory out of my head um <laughs> which i've kept for a long time so uh it was nice to exercise a, a demon but uh beyond that yeah uh, do not watch this but um all right well you know uh mickey's christmas carol Let's talk about that because had you ever seen it? It's possible I had as a kid, but I have no recollection of it. Okay. But it's okay. I mean, it's it's a. I love how condensed it is. I mean, like like the rich little one. It's a half hour. It's easy, good for kids. Um, and is this the inception of of like the miserly Scrooge McDuck? I don't know. I guess it is. Gary is the first appearance of Scrooge McDuck, which is what makes it really important. The, th- the things that stand out for me, uh, it's the very first appearance of Scrooge McDuck. And a very young John Lasseter actually worked on this. And John Lasseter would oh. end up being the guy that creates Pixar. But he mm-hmm. works as an animator on this special. So, and I think he's pretty young. So so that those are the two things that are interesting about it to me in, in historical context. But I just like it. I've always liked it. I think, the, I think all the characterizations really work. It, it actually, after I watched this one, every other version of A Christmas Carol seems too long to me. This one is like in and out. It hits all the high points. It gives you everything you need to know in like 24 minutes. It's a masterwork of brevity and heart. I think it gets right to the heart of A Christmas Carol without wasting a lot of time. And and who better to play Jacob Marley than Goofy? I mean, that's just, yeah. that's, that's wonderful. I did love it and it stood out to me was the, the animation behind the door knocker turning into Goofy's face. Uh, I thought that was really nicely done. Um, you know, yeah, and, it's, <laughs> and obviously old, old school hand-drawn animations has a certain warmth to it, which you can only yeah. get with, with hand-drawn animation. And, and there's just a couple of really nice animated scenes. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it's interesting because when they do the Christmas past in, in the movies and even in the book, it gets a lot into him being left in boarding school and, a lot of stuff with fezzy wigs and all of this. And I just feel like everyone should adopt the Mickey's Christmas Carol version, which is about four minutes. Gives yeah. you more than enough. You've got it. You already know. You know everything you need to know. It's nice shorthand. <laughs> Good. So. Yeah, it's fun. I didn't know Scrooge was Scottish. That was a little shocking. <laughs> is he always Scottish? You mean Scrooge McDuck or Scrooge or Ebenezer Scrooge? I thought you meant Ebenezer Scrooge. Scrooge McDuck. Sorry. Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> yeah, Scrooge McDuck is Scottish just because that was the voice of yeah i have no idea why oh yeah i didn't i did i was trying to remember from ducktales that i 
yep. I don't recall him being Scottish, but maybe he was. I don't know. He's uh, he is Scottish for some strange reason. I I, I don't know if that's ever been explained. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on then. Well, so now we'll get into like the serious stuff. That's right. Uh, at least for the time being. Um, so we'll do 1951, A Christmas Carol, directed by Brian Desmond Hurst. This, for me, was kind of the one that really set me on this path of changing my mind about Christmas films. Because in in maybe, I don't know, the last five years, I've really been trying to dive deeper into classic films and older films after being very averse to them for a long time. And uh, revisiting this and just, you know, it's it's A Christmas Carol. But as a film, it's incredible. I mean, the production value is astounding. It's it's really, really well made. And it's uh, it has great performances. This is the one my wife watches every year. Um, I oh, never really? really watch it because I, I am not really, I haven't been that interested in it, but now I'm gonna watch it every year because just looking at it from a filmmaking standpoint, it's it's beautiful. I think it's it's a really amazing film. Yeah, it's it's the it's in my mind like the quintessential version of a Christmas Carol, um, and, and obviously the performance by Alistair Sim. When when you think of Scrooge, that's kind of who you think of. Uh, whenever they you see like a random clip of it somewhere, like they'll usually use him. He has great facial reactions. There's just there's one part in the beginning which I think is just a great way to introduce how bad Ebenezer Scrooge is because he's walking down the street and there's that blind kid with the dog. And yet yeah. he walks to them and like they run away. And I just think, I mean, the kid's blind yet he still knows that Scrooge is there and then he knows to leave. Like there's just something about that scene, the way it plays out. It's really funny to me the way they film it. And it just is a nice shorthand to tell you how he is perceived. So it's just like these yeah. little touches that, that I think are, are really well done. Uh, the, the only thing I will say that I thought was funny when I was watching it again was uh, when he first sees Marley. Uh, if Marley is a ghost, like why does the door need to open for him to go through it? That's true. That was it. That was the only one. That was my only note, which I feel like I guess they had to do it. They had, they had no choice. But uh, but yeah, the door flings open. Then he walks through. I'm like, that was unnecessary. Mickey yeah. goofy goes right through the door. When I think of a Christmas Carol, this is the version I I think of. This is the one that I watch. So I, I I'd love to hear what you think about it watching it for the first time. Yeah, I was just blown away by it. I mean, I, like I said, the production value is incredible. I mean, it, it looks so good. Um, they really used effects properly i mean maybe not walking through a door effects but the uh just the overall production was was amazing and and i think alistair sim is so good at making that journey from the guy who a kid runs away from at the beginning to you know the guy at the end who's getting the giant turkey or whatever and it it really you know depends on his performance and i, and I think he just does such a great job probably far better than many who came after him. But for me, yeah, what stood out was just the production. Right? Like it just looked so good, especially for a film from 1951. I, I just thought it was ahead of its time with how it looked. So I was, I was really happy to watch it. Yeah, and again, I think this is a movie that benefits from being in black and white. Uh, there's just certain movies yep. that, that work that way. And, and this one, because of the time period where it takes place and because of the feel of it, I think that black and white actually serves the movie better than, than making it in color. That's, I, I was talking to my wife about it and, and that was another thing that makes this feel better than a lot of the other versions is that I feel like it's, it's closer to the time when it was written. And I think it portrays that time better 
like like there's less distance. I mean, I know it's it's a still a very old story, but it feels more authentic to the time than a lot of the other ones did. And I think that has to do with like limited technology and limited uh, uh, filmmaking ability. And yeah, I think it it just sets it up to be a beautiful film um, with working with what they had, which wasn't everything that, you know, the Jim Carrey version is going to have like 50 years later or whatever. But uh, working in 1951 or 1950 or whenever it was shot, I, I just think everything came to, I love watching a movie that I haven't seen and just having it be like wonderful. And this was one of those, it, it, it just, I'm not going to call it a perfect film, but I think it's, it's just so beautifully made and, and acted and written. And, and uh, it, it was a really pleasant surprise and something that I'm going to just put on my rotation every year. Now I'll actually watch a movie with my wife. Nice. So that leads us then to yeah. Next one that, that uh, we picked, which was 1984 with George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. And this is a good example where you compare it to 51 and that one feels a, a bit more natural. Where this one, yeah, it feels as if they're trying very hard to recreate an older period of time, but it it's, it's hard to shake the modern feel of it, of them just trying to be old. But it's a fine adaptation there's nothing bad about it, but the thing that disappointed me most is if you have George C. Scott playing your Ebenezer Scrooge, mm-hmm. you need to let him go. Like you really need to let him loose. It will. It will be like uh, you know casting Al Pacino and just telling him to, to be subdued throughout the whole thing. It's like you got George C. Scott. I expect to see George C. Scott two steps from a heart attack at least four times, and and I did not get that. <laughs> and of all the versions, though. No one says Mr. Cratchit better than George C. Scott did in this version. He says it like twice, like Mr. Cratchit. Like he said that thing at the very end, and he gets it, and you're like, that's perfect. Yeah. He does it like twice though. I just feel very let down that they didn't let George C. Scott loose. I think it would have just been beneficial to the movie because without it, it's just another version of a Christmas Carol. So I mean, mm. Christmas Carol's rise and fall on your Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, you have someone of that caliber who can really chew up some scenery and then not really let him go, I just think is a missed opportunity. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh, I thought he did a really good job. Um, maybe not as unhinged as, as he could have been, but I really enjoyed his performance. It felt like theatrical to me. It felt like a stage play almost. And I think one of the big differences between this and the 1951 version, uh, and to be clear, I really enjoyed this one as well. But the difference is that this is so, from a production standpoint, made for television. And you can see like the television in it, uh, which is fine. But if you put it next to the very uh, like theatrical 1951 version, it doesn't hold up quite as well. But I think for the medium, it's it's a really fine version. And I think George C. Scott's pretty good. Don't get me wrong. I'll jump in and say I didn't hate this version and I didn't dislike George C. Scott. I just wanted more George C. Scott. I'm just a big fan and I just wanted more of it. I just really would have uh, enjoyed it more if if they would have given me more of it. So, but but everything else about it is perfectly fine. It's a version you can watch and there's nothing bad about it. it. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, if you have to turn one on and 1951 isn't available, this is the one to go for. Uh, I will say this 
this made me very excited. And this might inform bonus episodes going forward, but I was very happy to see Halloween bonus episode veteran Edward Woodward as the ghost of Christmas present. Uh, we last saw him in The Wicker Man, which is a tremendous role. And now we see him in this. So I think that's going to kind of have to be a touchstone going forward for bonus episodes. Like always have Edward Woodward in them. Um, all right. So all that's left is Scrooge, the uh, 1988 Richard Donner film. Uh, what do you think about this one? I had watched this one fairly recently, but I watched it again uh, with my youngest son. And un unlike Christmas Vacation, where I kind of watched that and realized I didn't really enjoy it. I mean, again, this is based on your mileage with Bill Murray, like how much you actually like Bill Murray. Uh, yeah. But I really like Bill Murray and Scrooge really works for me. And it, it works for me for some of the reasons that we've talked about with some of the other movies. Whereas someone who's used to things that are a little more cynical, uh, I like that it really leans into the cynicism of how cynical the George, the, the uh, Ebenezer Scrooge character is, even though he's not Ebenezer Scrooge, but how cynical his character is, which makes mm. the turn at the end that much more pleasant to watch. But I think all the ghosts being kind of jerks is also very amusing. I think... Yeah. Uh, I just think it's really funny and there's some gross moments in it. There's some really funny moments in it, but the core of it. And I think that the trick in the script of them making a version of a Christmas Carol, that's not very good juxtaposed with him living through a Christmas Carol is a really smart idea for the movie. So you're thinking about the old Christmas Carol as you're watching him live a modern version of it. And yeah, yeah it just hits in a lot of ways. And I have to mention that both this and Christmas Vacation both have Brian Doyle Murray doing what Brian mm -hmm. Doyle Murray does best, which is playing a jerk. And uh, yeah. that was enjoyable to see in, in both of those. But uh, and that's the thing too with this movie. I mean, all of Bill Murray's brothers are in it too. So yeah. there's just yeah. all these little things about it that if you like Bill Murray and, and you like this period of time, uh, it, it really works for me. I, I I like it. I, I probably would watch it every year now, being reminded of how much I enjoy it. I enjoyed it as well. Um, I, I really loved watching it. And I, what I noticed, I watched the, I almost watched these in order of, of how we nominated them. And what I noticed is that it opens almost identically to The Family Man with this guy in a boardroom making this deal, trying to get something working for the holiday. And I think that kind of speaks to the time that, you know, that, hey, corporations and money, like, that's the 80s. Family Man is NTV, NTV, of course, which is, you know, a very big part of the 80s as well. So it just hits all, it checks all those boxes. Uh, and the, what, I, what I wanted to say, just realize we're talking about this. One of the things I liked about it is, and what we were saying about watching old versions of A Christmas Carol and thinking that I think those are just, almost better versions to watch because of the period of when they're taking place. The reason I think I really like Scrooge is because it gives you a Christmas Carol without being a remake, a modern remake of a Christmas Carol. I don't think I would enjoy right. an 80s or 90s, a late 80s, 90s version of a Christmas Carol. Like I just, I don't think we're here for that anymore. I think if you want to see it, there's a lot of versions in the past that are good to watch. But watching mm -hmm. a twist on it 
while still keeping the core of the story is just a smart idea. I, I think it just works better for a modern audience and that's why this movie works. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it you know, you have to repackage this stuff for newer audiences, younger people. And I, I could not see Bill Murray in a straight version of this <laughs> at all. <laughs> so yeah, it was, uh, I love the formatting of it. And uh, I, I think, um, yeah, it was great. It was a great film. Good to revisit. It's another one I hadn't watched just because I don't watch these films, but I hadn't seen it in decades. But I love the the technology had kind of caught up to it with, with the effects, like the, the when the ghost opens their robe and the, everything's underneath. And uh, that was really kind of of its time of like the monster makeup and everything, which was really cool. I, I wish I would have seen a little more Bobcat Goldthwaite He's kind of there and then he's gone stumbling around and then he's back with a gun. Yeah, it's maybe one of my favorite Bobcat Goldthwait performances. Uh, not that a lot of them would be on any list at all, but this one is, uh, <laughs> is, is pretty good. Yeah, um, a, a nice uh, modern retelling of it in a new way. I, I really enjoyed it. All right, so what uh, what did you pick as the winner of a best version of A Christmas Carol? All right, so I want to pick Mickey's Christmas Carol. I'm not going to lie. It is definitely the one that I watch more than any other version. I watch it every single year and I love it. But I know that's just nostalgic purposes, the reason I love it so much. Uh, so if we're if we're being serious of, of all the versions, I, I gotta go classic, go 51. I mean, that's just a, a I would say to anyone, if you're looking for a quintessential version of a Christmas carol, you want to start with one. That's the one you start with. I, I think that it all kind of stems from there. Yeah, you know, we're batting a thousand, you and I. We, this is uh, unprecedented. I'm in the same uh, camp. I think 1951 is just leagues above the others. I mean, it, you know, anytime you remake something, it, it's generally not going to be as good as the original and um, unless you put a, a different spin on it. And that's what Scrooge did. And I think that works well as its own thing. But for a version of the Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol, I don't think you can really beat the 1951 version. And that's probably not even the original version, I would imagine. But, uh, you know, it's the one that nails it and kind of sets the bar for everything after it. So, uh, yeah, that's the one to watch. I agree. All right. Well, let's move on to best non-Christmas Christmas movie. Yeah, this, this is my favorite category, just just to say. It's a fun one. I mean, you can almost put anything into it. Like there's a debate around it, which is kind of cool. You know, there <laughs> a lot of opinions and uh, a lot of things to choose from because it, I guess it depends on what your definition of a Christmas movie is. So actually, before we even get into the cat to the nominees, why don't you just tell me your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think makes a Christmas movie? That's a really good question, because I think as we were going through this and I was watching some of these, I, I was thinking about that. Like how much Christmas needs to be in it to make it a Christmas movie? So just taking place during the holiday, does that count? If there's like one scene that involves Christmas, I don't think that's enough to make it count. Uh, I think there there has to be a, a general Christmas theme throughout the movie. It has to touch on it at least more than three times, I think, to, to kind of make it a movie that falls into that category if you okay. want to that's where i'm thinking yeah that's the at least more than one reference to christmas you can't just kind of have it briefly pass through and then uh you know make that a christmas movie it doesn't work for me that's a that's a good explanation uh for me it's is is christmas part of the plot 
like would this film happen without Christmas being involved? So that's kind of my approach to it. And we're talking about non-Christmas Christmas movies, which I would say like 90% of quote unquote Christmas movies could fall into for me because the way I see it is like if Christmas is involved somehow and that gets the story going, then that's a Christmas movie. So yeah, let's look at the uh, the non-Christmas Christmas movies. Uh, what were your selections for this? So I went pretty straightforward on this one. I went with Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. The, I mean, those are the perfect examples. <laughs> the action-oriented non-Christmas Christmas movie. I went with Gremlins, and then I uh, took a little departure. Originally, I had Rocky Four in here. Uh, which we discussed and figured that could be its own episode. So uh, I took it out and I replaced it with The Apartment, Billy Wilder's uh, 1960 classic, because uh, that's a great film and I wanted to rewatch it. But my first pick, just to get into it, was Gremlins. And I loved revisiting this film. It's kind of a Christmas movie, though, I guess, but it could happen without Christmas. Yeah, it almost it's more towards being a true Christmas movie almost than a non-Christmas Christmas movie because it's very much centered around the holiday, but it's dark enough to kind of take a left turn from you can consider it a holiday movie for that reason, I guess, because it's because it's really more of almost a horror movie. Yeah, and and just by my own criteria, it would fall into the Christmas movie category just because it's a Christmas gift that sets everything in motion, but uh We'll just uh, overlook that for now <laughs> so we can talk about Gremlins. Um, yeah, I loved revisiting this. Also, I love Joe Dante, so I was happy to put something in there for him. And uh, another Chris Columbus script. This guy is all over the holidays. Yeah, I mean, think about it. A movie written by Chris Columbus and directed by Joe Dante is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, a, crazy, uh, it's a crazy idea. Um, there were a lot of nods to other Christmas films in this, like, you know, it's in Kingston Falls, which is basically Bedford Falls from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And of course, It's a Wonderful Life is actually on television in one scene. But um, I, I just love the idea of it, of, of uh, these little things. Just it, it, it's really, I think the the man at the end who comes to collect Gizmo kind of sums it up what the story is about, which is man sort of not having any respect for nature. Um, there's there's a deep story there. There's a deep meaning behind this film. And uh, I also love that it has those consumerism tones to it that we were talking about before, because uh, it really feels to me almost like it ends the, like it basically turns into Dawn of the Dead. I mean, it has a finale in a shopping mall or a, a department store and uh, if, if that doesn't say something about consumerism, I, I don't know what does. Another thing about this was I was really blown away by the effects in revisiting it. Um, they're all practical effects. There's no CGI in, in 1984. And, and the things they did were pretty amazing. And, and, you know, I just chalked that up to Joe Dante, knowing what he's doing, and Spielberg. Um, yeah, and it, it's actually interesting you bring that up because in contrast, Gremlins 2 looks terrible in comparison to the original Gremlins. And I yeah. don't really understand why, like what changed because <laughs> they actually were both directed by Joe Dante. I can't quite figure out like why the second one looks worse than the first one. Yeah. It's like five years later, the technology should be better, 
and yet yeah it, it makes the original stand out in terms of effects because they are really good and they hold up pretty well yeah and thank god they ended up the way they did because originally <laughs> this is horrific but they wanted monkeys to be the gremlins so they they got a monkey put a suit on him and they put a gremlin head on him and he just freaked out so they immediately scrapped that idea because a monkey wearing a gremlin head is not going to work apparently um but that kind of pushed them to to go further and and what they came up with i think was really amazing it was really really good so yeah what uh what do you think about gremlins so i i enjoyed gremlins and i watched it a lot when i was younger i don't think it would rise to the level of becoming classic for me overall it works it's just not my favorite but but i did i hadn't seen it in a few years and there were still parts that were really fun like i enjoyed his mother laying waste to gremlins especially you know throwing a microwave like that part is always enjoyable to me no in the original script chris columbus had it that one of the gremlins cut her head off jesus that's terrible yeah (laughs) wow that's a little dark uh but my favorite thing about it is that the father you know gets the gremlin hoyt axton you know, he goes away and all hell breaks loose. But he comes back and he's just like perfectly calm about the whole thing. Like he comes back in and they're in the middle of like a gremlin apocalypse and uh, they're trying to kill Stripe. And he just seemed completely calm about it. I, there's just something about that that makes me laugh every time. How uh, absolutely nonplussed he is about the fact that uh, the entire town has been laid to waste by something that he did. Well, so. I think that goes to show you how his concern for family and human well-being is trumped by his desire for capitalism and, and making money. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, that, that would part of it makes me laugh. But uh, yeah, as far as a Christmas movie goes, you know, it's it's pretty good. I may watch it every few years. It's not; it wouldn't be my every year rotation. But almost as just a fun horror type movie, I like it much more as that than I, than I do as a Christmas movie. All right. Uh, so my other pick was The Apartment which is is a little less of a Christmas movie than Gremlins, I guess, it, and uh, kind of falls under both Christmas and New Year's in a in a non-Christmas or New Year's film kind of way. Um, I, I love this film. I think it, it just kind of speaks to the loneliness of the holidays for somebody who doesn't have family. And it's just really well written. And I think Jack Lemmon is fantastic in it. Uh, Shirley MacLaine too. Fred McMurray, not a fan of that guy, just because he's always such a terrible person in films. And... <laughs> get the sense that you know maybe he's like that in real life i don't know yeah i just think about fred mcmurray just uh, to interrupt you but that he almost has he is two completely different versions of fred mcmurray there's the version of fred mcmurray that was in my three sons and was in a bunch of disney movies and then there's the fred mcmurray that is in anything else where he plays someone terrible and i just think that's fascinating where it's two completely different sides of the same actor uh, or if you only know him through the family stuff, you'd think he's just like the most wonderful person in the world. But all the grown-up stuff he was in, he plays genuinely bad people. And uh, I, I think that's great. Yeah, I was kind of shocked once I started getting into the films that he was in because I only knew him from My Three Sons and, and the Disney stuff. So watching Double Indemnity was like shocking to me. But yeah, this I just think this is a great film altogether. And, and I kind of wanted a reason to watch it again. Um, it was actually the last black and white film to win Best Picture until The Artist in like 2011 or something, which I think is cool too. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's set at the holidays, which is a very depressing time. And and Shirley MacLaine in particular is, is depressed 
to the point where she attempts suicide. Um, but it's just dark and it's kind of lonely and, and uh, really, I don't know, just an interesting depiction of the holidays for some people. Um, also speaks to capitalism and and trying to get ahead with success in the modern world. You know, Jack Lemmon's character is is uh, intent on climbing the ladder and does whatever he has to to get there, even though he doesn't feel great about it. So yeah, it sticks to that theme that that a lot of these films have around money. Um, but yeah, I I just really loved it. What did you think? So I love the apartment, and you mentioned the film uh, last best picture in black and white and and what's interesting is that you know filming in black and white in 1960 is a choice uh and that was deliberately done for and it it evokes a certain feeling to the movie which serves it you know perfectly for for what this story that you're trying to tell here but as i was watching this what i thought was that until you had your change of heart this is the perfect example of a movie that you would pick as a christmas movie before (laughs) Uh, you came around to what uh, more Christmas movies are like. That that was that was what I yeah. thought. You know, as I was watching, I think the apartment is is one of the, the the best movies of all time in terms of scripts and Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, both fairly early performances for the both of them, and just knocking it out of the park. I like everything about this movie. I just don't know if I would in any way classify it as a holiday movie. It does take place during yeah. the Christmas holiday and. But I, but I do appreciate that you bring up the idea that it, it speaks to the loneliness that someone feels particularly around the holidays. So I, I looking at it from that perspective, it, it's making me come around to it a little more. So I, I think that's that's a cool observation. Uh, but it just doesn't quite get there for me, where I would throw it into a category of holiday movies, where I would be like, oh, it's Christmas, we're going to watch The Apartment. Like I would watch it any other month of the year, but, but probably not in December. But it's a non-Christmas Christmas movie. That's why. That's fair, but the non part, I think, is just the, as I said, there has to be at least more than one reference to Christmas. I think there's just the Christmas party. And then, you know, the Christmas party leads to a suicide, which just kills the whole thing, uh, a suicide attempt. So it, it's, uh, it's stretching. It ends with New Year's. A Christmas movie really hard. It's really hard. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. But I, it, I, you I, know, it ends I, with New like, Year's. I, it's the thing of this category. I want to be able to try to stretch the boundaries of what we consider a Christmas movie as far as we can go. And this one may have dipped the toe over the line, but it, it in no way speaks to whether or not this is a good movie because it's a great one. I don't know. I mean, I think that loneliness is very Christmas for some people. And and so that's part of why I picked it because it, it's kind of a depressing film and it's a dark film. And, and you know, people who don't have families, that's that's sort of how the holidays are for them. So that's that was my thinking behind it. Um, going to stick with it. No, I, uh, I, I agree. I, I, uh, I like that, you, that you're bringing that here because as i've said more than once i'm, I'm a, a bit of a sentimental fool when it comes to holiday movies so uh i like pushing the boundaries out to, to other experiences and things so uh yeah so it may not quite get there for me but i can understand how it would get there for other people so i'm ha- happy to, to throw it in the category well speaking of pushing the boundaries you picked a film that sets the precedent for the debate of is it a christmas movie or isn't um so why don't you speak to die hard yeah, this is kind of the one that kicked off the whole argument because there are many people that consider Die Hard a Christmas movie and, and many others who don't. Uh, but it kind of checks all the boxes for a holiday movie. I mean, it takes place on Christmas. There are lots of references to Christmas. There, there are, are Christmas paraphernalia around. I mean, the whole story takes place 
during a Christmas party. So for me, it, it works. It, uh, it, I, I would put it in, it checks enough boxes for me to count as a Christmas movie. Uh, I think that some people just don't like it because it's, it's an action movie, it's pretty violent. Uh, and I'm sure people don't think that falls into the holiday spirit. And I would agree with that sentiment for some other movies that are just violent for violence sake. Like that movie Violent Night that came out last year, it seems a bit too far for me. Yeah, that makes me think about a a hor- a Christmas horror category maybe for next year because I, I've been thinking about that film a little bit and and uh, that kind of got me down a, a rabbit hole with other Christmas horror. So, uh, so you just determine you just determine to ruin Christmas for me, are you? <laughs> I'm coming around. All right. So, but yeah. So, so Die Hard. Uh, and the thing is, Die Hard is just fun. It's just a fun movie. And uh, it's Christmassy enough where you can throw it in there. It's a nice change of pace in your holiday movie collection. Because a lot of them, as we've said, we go through all these, they all hit similar themes. And this one definitely does does not follow a lot of that convention. And so I I like throwing it in there to mix things up. Die Hard's such an interesting film. I mean, Christmas or not, you know, you and I both read The Last Action Heroes by Nick DeSemlin. and, And they talk about how this is kind of an antidote to the muscle bound action hero of the eighties with Stallone and Schwarzenegger. And it just, it's such a kind of an important film in American action. And the fact that it has a Christmas element to it is kind of great. I don't see what the debate is. I mean, it's yeah, like by my it, criteria. Well, speak to your point though, in that it's an antidote to those muscle bound movies, much like gremlins almost had monkeys and they had to go a different way, which makes it an interesting movie. You know, everyone turned right. down Die Hard. I mean, uh, no action hero actually wanted to do it. And I actually think a lot yeah. of the reason a lot of them didn't want to do it is is because he ends up not wearing shoes for a lot of the movie. And uh, I don't think they wanted to get hurt. So uh, a lot of them just rejected the movie out of hand. So just almost by happenstance, it, it ends up resetting the table for what we think an action hero could be. Yeah. I mean, that goes to show you how you never know in Hollywood. It could be anything that is a happy accident that ends up, you know, creating a ripple that lasts for a long time. But yeah, it's it's just a really cool film. And it's, uh, whether you think it's Christmas or not, it is. And it uh, it's a lot of fun. So I'm glad it's on this list. All right. And, and the last film in this category is Lethal Weapon. Uh, yeah, so I think Lethal Weapon because I think that everyone gets, is so busy talking about Die Hard that I think they forget about Lethal Weapon which actually came out the year before. And to me, Lethal Weapon absolutely counts as a Christmas movie. I mean, Mm -hmm. the whole thing, I mean, of course it starts with Murtaugh's birthday, but very much during the holiday season, when we're introduced to Riggs, he's actually uh, seeing Christmas stuff on the TV and, you know, all the action takes place over the Christmas holidays. You know, Murtaugh's Christmas tree gets destroyed. There's all these things. Uh, And on a side note, I mean, not really related, but it has who I consider possibly over Mariah Carey to be the queen of Christmas. Darlene Love plays Murtaugh's yep. wife. And uh, Absolutely. I consider her to be at least in the top three queens of Christmas. So uh, that doesn't really make it a Christmas movie, but I'll put it there anyway. But yeah, it, it definitely takes place enough during the holiday where I would throw it in and include it. And as you look at Shane Black's movies... Shane Black wrote the screenplay for this famously. 80% of Shane Black's movies take place during Christmas. What he understands is that putting a movie during the holiday increases the the tension of a movie. So almost every one of his movies 
has some Christmas scene somewhere in it. So there's Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which also takes place during Christmas, mm-hmm. Long Kiss Goodnight, The Nice Guys ends on a, you know, the, the climax of that I think takes place during Christmas. Even Iron Man 3 takes place during Christmas. Yep. So um, <laughs> he definitely understands that adding the holiday is, is a nice way to kind of uh, boost the excitement to, to your movie. And Lethal Weapons, where he started that. And, and it definitely helps. So putting through the holidays, and you talk about loneliness, it increases Riggs's depression and is what really puts yeah. him on edge because it's the holiday season. So there's that part of it, which I think is why the holiday theme is important. You know, unlike uh, Jack Lemmon's character in the apartment, you know, Riggs is, is borderline homicidal and suicidal, but that's a whole other thing. But but similar idea. Right. So uh, I'm more than happy to throw it in. I, I think it absolutely qualifies. Yeah, I think it it kind of embodies both sides of Christmas, right? It has Riggs being this lonely, suicidal guy who's paired up with Murtaugh, who has this very festive, like, loving family. And just to sidetrack for a minute, (laughs) you mentioned that it starts with Murtaugh's birthday. Uh, It's his 50th birthday, and I'm sure this has been covered before, but... uh, you know, he's his famous line is "I'm too old for this shit." Uh, Danny Glover, forty-one, when when filming this, playing a fifty-year-old. But what this stirs up for me is that it was just announced that there's going to be a Lethal Weapon five that Mel Gibson's going to direct next year. So my question is, will it follow the same timeline? Because if it does, Roger Murtaugh is going to be eighty-eight years old in in 2024. So I'm really interested. He was too old for this shit in 1987. So I can't imagine how too old for this shit he's going to be in 2024. It's going to be interesting. I mean, the tagline, the tagline writes itself, right? I'm too dead for this shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I really like this a lot. Um, there's a lot of Vietnam in it, which is interesting. Uh both Riggs and Murtaugh were were Vietnam vets, and then of course the antagonist is is Vietnam related, played by Tom Atkins, which is great. Um, but th- that creates another level to it, I think, that's very '80s. Uh, in having <laughs> there were a lot of like post Vietnam films with sort of PTSD in them that made these crazy action people, and it's just over the top in the best ways. I mean, it it. Riggs is essentially a Looney Tunes character. I mean, he's such a cartoon. And in fact, he, he you know, he adopts a, a Three Stooges sort of uh, mentality for a while there. <laughs> uh, and by the way, when he does that, I think that's in the Christmas tree scene, right? Where he does the Three Stooges thing. The, I don't know if you know this, but the guy, the one guy who is buying the drugs or, or whatever they're doing in the red and black flannel, uh, that's Blackie Dammit, and he's Anthony Kiedis' dad. If you wow. go and, wow. yeah, if you go back and look at him, and then you think to Point Break, where Anthony Kiedis has that quick scene on the beach, it's like the same guy. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, so, so it's a side note to your side note, which is, I <laughs> wouldn't be surprised if that Three Stooges thing is ad-libbed, because... Mel Gibson is actually a well-known Three Stooges obsessive. That he had supposedly been trying to work on getting a Three Stooges movie made for a while. Uh, that he always loved them. So it wouldn't surprise me that he threw that in just for his own personal taste. That it may not even been in the script. I don't know that for sure. But uh, yeah, that's just something I happen to remember about him. Man, this is a great film. Yeah, Lethal Weapon is not only one of my favorite holiday films, it's one of my favorite buddy cop films. I mean, it it, it definitely 
set the template for buddy cop films as we know just for the next 40 years i mean lethal weapons just like lethal weapon and die hard basically set the templates for for those type of movies going forward for our entire lives um but yeah and again i think it's you know whatever people think of mel gibson now and and all of that things get messy uh and you go back and watch lethal weapon and you're just reminded that he was just really charismatic and they were excellent together and anytime you have Gary Busey playing a, a lunatic villain. You're going to have a fun movie as far as I'm concerned. So uh, Gary Busey's just playing G Gordon Liddy, right? Like, you know, Liddy's famous for putting his hand over a flame and just being like a maniac. So I assume that's sort of the, the impetus for the character. Um, one thing kind of weird that happened is that I watched this with my wife and we decided to watch all of them, which I don't recommend because the ones beyond this are just garbage. But uh, we watched the second one. I don't know if you remember the villain. Uh, he's played by Joss Ackland. He's the yeah, he just passed away. Yeah. So he passed away the day we watched it, which was crazy. Cool. So we just watched this film, and then there's you know on the news that night that he passed away, which I, I just thought was kind of harrowing. Did you both look at each other and say his diplomatic immunity was revoked. <laughs> I wish we had. Oh boy. All right, so. Uh, what, who, what gets your vote for best non-Christmas Christmas movie? So as much as I, I do like Die Hard and consider it a, a Christmas movie, uh, I've just always loved Lethal Weapon. It's one of my favorite movies, probably of all time. Um, I've, I've watched it more times than I can count. Uh, and as I said, it just, I like buddy cop movies and this is pretty much the buddy cop movie. And the fact that it's, Christmas related, it it, uh, it shoots to number one pretty easily for me. Uh, I never really get tired of it. And I'm looking forward to showing it to my oldest son for the first time this year, because he's never seen it. And uh, I'm, I'm gonna enjoy that. Wow, I can't imagine what it would be like to see this as uh, a young person today, because there's some questionable stuff in it from the time. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't hold up. but. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I would love to hear what he thinks of it when he when you show it to him. Yeah, I, I love watching some of this stuff reflected through my kids' eyes because you're right. It, it's uh, some stuff that we just take for granted that they they point out, which is really interesting to me. So we'll see. Yeah, for me, I, you know, I'm kind of on the fence with this one um, between Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. Love the apartment. Uh, like you said, it's it's a great film all around. Um, maybe not necessarily for Christmas, but. Uh, love Gremlins too. I, I uh, hadn't revisited that in a, quite a while, so I was really happy to watch it again and just see really how good it is and how well made it is. But I think uh, you know, Die Hard is like a classic. I mean, it's just such a, a beloved film, and it's something that, like I said, it kind of started the debate over what's a Christmas movie and what isn't in in modern times, and and. Uh, it's just, it's like a touchstone for a lot of things. Um, but I think I'm going to go with you on this and I'm going to say Lethal Weapon because, again, I hadn't watched Lethal Weapon in years. And even though there's some questionable stuff in it, uh, what a fun film. Um, I don't know that the Christmas needs to be in there, but it certainly lends to the emotion of of Mel Gibson, like what he's feeling and... and uh, you know how he approaches the rest of the film so uh yeah i guess it's it's kind of an essential element 
Um, it reminds you how good, I mean, Richard Donner had just a hell of a run in, in the 80s around this time. I mean, he'd made Scrooge, I think, like the year right after Lethal Weapon. Uh, mm -hmm. made a, a bunch of stuff up to this point. And, and uh, yeah, I, I just think it's uh, all of Richard Donner's work could, could use a, a revisit. Let's move on. This is kind of a big one. We'll move on to best classic Christmas movie. What were your nominees for this one? So I went very classic in this category. We went with It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. And I actually picked the third one in this category, which was Christmas mm -hmm. in Connecticut. Uh, yep. Robert Stanwyck movie from 1945. Right. Uh, and my pick was It Happened on Fifth Avenue, which is, is another old one uh, from 1947. Talk to me about uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Well, I think we've talked about It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, we've already done another pod and, and uh, there's not much to be said. It's, it's considered the classic of all classic Christmas movies. But even more than just being a classic Christmas movie, it's just a extremely well-made movie. The script is almost perfect on every level. Uh, and, and this, the point that I'll make when I think about this movie is that it makes me think about what I was talking about when I said there are no good Thanksgiving movies, where mm. I said that, that there, there isn't enough emotional investment in anyone in a movie. Like you can't build up emotional investment fast enough to make anyone care about someone's Thanksgiving in a movie, which is why I don't think it works. But you could say that for a lot of movies. The reason It's a Wonderful Life is better than most and why its script is so perfect as far as I'm concerned is it spends most of the movie building up the character so that when the payoff comes at the end, it pays off in a way that is really emotional, that you really feel like you know him because the, the script does such a good job of, of giving you his life up to that point. And, and so I think it, it builds character in a pretty quick way and i just think that's a really hard thing to do yeah it almost has a another christmas carol like structure to it in that he's kind of seeing like the family man like he's seeing a different world than the one he's currently in or he's living in a different world than than the one he knows and and uh kind of gets him to change his mind um i think this is a classic film because it resonates so well today um you know the fbi actually saw this as communist propaganda because it was so against big business. And that's something that has kind of obviously carried on throughout history in America in particular. So I think that's why it hits home today the way it did back then. You know, it's, it's a little guy standing up to a big guy, uh, which is pretty fundamental and, and makes for a great film. And this was Capra's first film back from the war. I mean, this is what he worked on after doing all of his war films. So uh, I think that kind of plays into it as well a little bit, you know, and, and a lot of these films, uh, these sort of classic films we're going to talk about have a similar idea where there's a soldier in it who comes back from the war. Um, in a lot of these movies too, I think that what makes them hold up is that there's a tinge of darkness to them. Mm -hmm. It's not just bright to be bright all the time, that there's a certain realism in, in the fact that there are dark aspects of life that we that we have to move through. And I think that's why it's still watchable 70 years later. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's relatable, you know, because life isn't, although <laughs> I'll say Christmas in Connecticut might not have that dark uh, tinge to it as much, but this certainly does. And uh, I think a miracle on 34th street does as well. And, and uh, so does it happen on fifth Avenue. So 
yeah, I mean, I think there, there are a lot of commonalities between all these films. That's pretty much it. Like you said, we talked about it before, and, and uh, I think it's been talked to death. So uh, there's not much more to say about it other than what we've said. And the same goes for the next film, Miracle on 34th Street, which uh, has also kind of been talked to death. But uh, that's because it's a classic. I mean, these films are classics for a reason that they, you know, they, they just live in the Christmas zeitgeist every year. I will say that I had seen A Miracle on 34th Street, but it's been decades since I've watched it. I think there seems to be like a little Beatles and Rolling Stones thing with It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. In fact, I put a poll on Facebook on the Reoscar page uh, asking which one was preferred. And and I also threw Die Hard in there uh, asking <laughs> which is the best Christmas film. And uh, overwhelmingly, people loved It's a Wonderful Life over both of the other films. Um, oddly, Die Hard a little more than it and Miracle on 34th Street. But it's interesting. I mean, there, there's a real sort of uh, friendly rivalry between the two. And having not seen it in such a long time and maybe not ever in its entirety, I fully expected to think nothing of it because I was team It's a Wonderful Life if uh, if I had a team and just because that's what I'd seen so much. Um, but I was blown away by this film. I loved it so much. I think it, it just has, even though there's that cynicism in there, it has just a joy to it, like a really lighthearted uh, approach that it, uh, is not as fully apparent and it's a wonderful life. I mean, that has that darkness that you talked about. Um, but, you know, this feels like Elf to me in that it's it's just this uplifting, beautiful, non-cynical film. And it has tiny Natalie Wood in it too, which is pretty cool. Right. I so, mean, what you have much like Elf is that you have an uncynical character, the personification of someone who is not cynical, dropped into an extremely cynical world. and Yep. teaching them how to just appreciate things a little bit more. And when done well, that kind of film always works. Yeah. I, I was just so pleasantly surprised by this. I was really happy to watch it. Um, what I did read is that <laughs> Daryl Zanuck thought people went to movies in the summer, uh, presumably because of air conditioning. Uh, and so this was released in May, which is very strange. And they they played down the Christmas aspect so that people would still go see it. Uh, so I don't know exactly what it did at the box office when it was released, but it's clearly stood the test of time and grown an audience uh, with good reason. It's it's a lot of fun. It's it's an uplifting film. It's it's a very heartful film, uh, and I was really happy to watch it. Yeah, I just think I mean, so it's a wonderful life comes out in '46, and this comes out in '47. Can't be just two Christmas classics back to back. I think that's sort of a little run right there. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, again, there's the consumerism aspect of this with the kids wanting the toys and, and uh, uh, that's played up, but um, that's okay. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. Uh, I will say too that I found right from the opening shot, the cinematography is beautiful in this. Um, it almost felt like a documentary at the beginning, which is kind of neat. And it was a lot of fun to look at as a picture throughout. So uh, yeah, really good and, and a lot of fun to watch. I'm glad you put it on the list. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And in fact, everyone gets the same thing with like Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. We kind of only have room in our brains for one when we think of classic. People just lean towards just a wonderful life. 
But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of nice movies from that period of time, which we'll get into two more when, when we get into this. But uh, yeah, I think it's Miracle on 34th Street. Also because it was remade. And, and the remake in 94 actually isn't terrible. It's okay. Uh, Richard Attenborough plays the Chris Kringle character. You know, young Mara Wilson play, plays a little girl. So it, it's uh, it's serviceable. I mean, but again, the, the original is better. But uh, I wouldn't say this is one where, where the remake is terrible. If you need it to be in color, it's not the worst thing in the world. It doesn't skew very far from the original. All right. Let's move on to Christmas in Connecticut. Yeah. Christmas uh, in Connecticut is a movie I discovered only a few years ago. I, I don't even remember how I stumbled onto it. And was just pleasantly surprised at how much fun it was. I mean, I'm a big Barbara Stanwyck fan. So um, I, w- I was happy to find this one. And it's got everything that you like about her in, in a movie. Where, where the, the premise is that she plays a food writer that writes these wonderful recipes. And she writes about the recipes, but also her family and you know cooking for her husband and her children in a farmhouse in Connecticut that she lives in. But all of that stuff is fake. She She's just a single girl who lives in a, an apartment in New York. And she's created this whole fantasy world. And there's a soldier who was lost out at sea that comes back and he dreams about having a meal with her. So her editor sets up that he will come to her farmhouse for a nice classic country Christmas. So she has to basically find a farmhouse and pull together a meal and pretend that she is the person that she's been lying about for years to to sell this to her editor who would fire her if he found out that she was a liar. Uh, Which again, what a great premise for a movie. I mean, just a, a really fun idea. And Barbara Stanwyck knocks it out of the park, as far as I'm concerned. She, she's a joy to watch in this. And uh, it, it was, I laughed and, and really enjoyed it. And so it became kind of a perennial Christmas movie for me. Yeah, it's a real screwball comedy. Um, I will say, just to speak to the, the dream sequences, that you, you said he dreams of having a meal with this woman. And, but the dream sequences on the raft at the beginning are straight out of Bugs Bunny. I mean, he sees, yeah, exactly. you know, people looking like turkeys and, and uh, just fantastic. Yeah, I wonder um, if they stole that exact same bit from this movie in the in those cartoons. Probably. Yeah, that that uh, would not surprise me. Yeah, it's it's, and then he's in the hospital and he can't eat, but he can smoke, which is uh, <laughs> so indicative of the time. So this is kind of the original catfish, I think. You know, this woman is just pulling the wool over America's eyes uh, in Smart Housekeeping magazine, which is pretty great. Um, Barbara Stanwyck is my queen. I love her so much in everything. So I'm really happy to see her in this lead role of supremely funny. Just just a great I think Barbara great Stanwyck, film. I know while we're talking about this, though, I don't know if you're aware of this, but she actually was in a holiday movie before this one. And it starred Fred McMurray. This was before they were even in Double Indemnity together. They started a movie called mm-hmm. Remember the Night in 1940, mm-hmm. which was directed by Preston Sturgis, who loved Barbara Stanwyck, by the way. But uh, right. yeah, so before they'd even made Double Indemnity, they started in a holiday movie together, which is just kind of another movie that's kind of forgotten, but maybe we'll put it on the list next year and watch it. But uh, I thought that was interesting. So this wasn't even her first Christmas movie. But yeah, just a great holiday film all around. Uh, it's very light. You know, it doesn't have that darkness that we talked about with some of the other films. And- yeah, yeah. So this almost flouts that rule that, that uh, this one doesn't really have have a, a dark side to it. 
but holds up pretty well. But again, it does have a soldier aspect to it, as as all of these do, because they're all, you know, a couple of years after the war was over. I think that's interesting, too, because uh, it's like, how many different ways can they find to incorporate a soldier into these different stories uh, coming back from the war? But uh, even even more than that, it kind of speaks to the women of that time. You know, when the men were away at war, these women had to be independent. And uh, then they, when the men came back, they were kind of put back in that role. But Barbara Stanwyck really, you know, just embodies that spirit of the independent woman from during the war, carrying it over. And I, I really love like the strength of her character in this. I will say, because you mentioned the remake of Miracle on 34th Street, did you know that this was remade? I did not. Okay, you're going to love this. So it was remade for television in 1992 with Diane Cannon in the Barbara Stanwyck role and Chris Christopherson. But what makes it interesting is who directed it. Arnold Schwarzenegger directed this TV movie. You've got to be kidding me. I am so happy that I'm not kidding you because I cannot wait to find this and watch it. Uh, wow, I don't know that he's ever directed it together. That is, that is uh, I can't even believe this. Wow. Maybe uh, maybe a re-Oscared watch along. We can do that somehow. I, I was blown away by that. It's nuts. <laughs> I don't know I don't that he's directed that anything. Schwarzenegger's ever directed anything else other other than that. I don't even. Wow. Yeah, I I don't know. That's that's in my research. That's what I found. I, I can't even imagine what uh, what that's like. But I'm very excited to watch it. That could potentially go on my annual. Uh, list of things to watch for the holidays. Definitely going on my list this um, year. I gotta, I gotta find that. Yeah, for sure. Diane Cannon, Chris Christopherson, uh, very 1992, I think. But yeah, it, this is a great film. Moving on to the the fourth nominee in this category, this is a film I found last year. My wife found it and uh, we watched it together. It's called It Happened on Fifth Avenue. Uh, it's from 1947, directed by Roy Del Ruth. And it's the story of a, a homeless man who moves into a Fifth Avenue mansion when its owner goes to winter in the South. Uh, and he brings in a war veteran, surprise, surprise, to live with him. And then subsequent war veterans. And then it's a whole thing about building housing for war veterans in the end. Um, but this film just has so much heart to it. Uh, I really loved watching this last year for the first time. Victor Moore is amazing in the lead, and uh, it actually got a nomination for Best Story, which is well-deserved. Uh, what did you think of this film? Did you love it? Yeah, so I was going going to say that I'd never heard of this movie before until you brought it to me, and uh, I, I just watched it last night, actually, and um, my wife watched it with me, and we we were so pleasantly surprised it's just such an enjoyable movie very funny it has a big heart what i found out is that frank capra was actually connected to this movie this, he was supposed to direct this mm-hmm. until he discovered the story for it's a wonderful life and then walked away from this project so you can see right. a lot of capra elements in it although the rich man kind of being redeemed at the end is probably why capra didn't want to do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> that would surprise me uh, because he, he ends up having a change of heart, which is uh, isn't very Capra esque. But um, yeah, it's got a lot of elements of, of a Capra movie in it. 
And and you're right. The, the uh, Victor Moore's character is very funny. Yeah, I, it's hard to uh, put it put it into words here. We, we just really enjoyed watching it. It was, it was a great movie to see for the first time. And um, it was also really cool to see Alan Hale Jr., who ends up playing the skipper in Gilligan's Island. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. So that that was also fun to see. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. This is one of those films, like I mentioned earlier, that I didn't know what to expect, and I just came across it, and it just, it really touched me. Um, I mean, you know, it has a lot of the hallmarks of the holiday films of the time, but there's just something about it. And I, I think uh, the biggest thing about it for me is Victor Moore's performance. I mean, he just really sells that role and, and is just so sweet and, and likable, but just a great film, just a, a kind of a hidden gem, I think. So yeah, it, it, right. and it's true. It's like, it's, it's hard to dive into the minutia of why you like it. It's just a fun watch. It's just one of those movies you can sit with and you'll smile throughout most of it. And it'll, it'll end with you feeling good. And that, that's really all you can ask for from a holiday movie. All right. Well, who did you vote for, for best classic uh, Christmas movie? I love all these movies and I would watch all of them every year, which I kind of do already. Uh, well, I didn't up to this point, but I'm going to add Avenue Fifth Avenue to my list. But if we're going classic, you go classic. You go on It's a Wonderful Life. And honestly, if I picked a movie other than It's a Wonderful Life, my wife would probably come over and punch me in the face. So um, there's no way I'm going against my wife's feelings about it, and I'm going with It's a Wonderful Life. All right. That's, that's respectable. Uh, I think this is where we part ways. Uh, I fully expected to just come in and, and love It's a Wonderful Life, but um, and I absolutely adore Christmas in Connecticut. Uh, it's, it's just so much fun to watch. It's so lighthearted and it happened on fifth Avenue is like I just said, it's a hidden gem. I'm so happy I found it, but I think after watching a miracle on 34th street, I, I am really sold on it. I was just kind of blown away by, uh, like elf, you know, it's, it's just, it's about believing and, uh, what's better than that at the holidays? You know, you just want to believe. Like, the, it, you just want to have have a kind heart and believe in the world. And I think this is such a good embodiment of that. So I'm going to give the Oscar to A Miracle on 34th Street. I like it. All right. Well, then let's move on now. We're going to go with, we're going to kind of get modern here and go with Best Oddball Christmas Film. This is a category I threw out there because it, I, I feel like there's been a run of new Christmas films that are not necessarily in the same tradition as a lot of the older ones. And, and they're a little more adult uh, in content, which is kind of great, actually. And that a lot of the ones that fall into this category that we pick are like that. They're maybe PG-13 or, or higher. So I picked all the nominees in this category because I, I love uh, a bit of an edge to my Christmas film. So uh, <laughs> the ones I went with were Why Him?, by John Hanberg from 2016, starring uh, Brian Cranston and James Franco. Uh, Bad Santa from 2003 with Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, the Night Before from 2015 with Anthony Mackie, Seth Rogen, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And then Just Friends from 2005 with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Amy Smart. All of these are sort of uh, edgy films, I think, that maybe don't have overt Christmas themes like some of the other ones do. Did any of these stand out to you as things you liked or didn't like? 
Yes, yes, they did. Uh, <laughs> to me. So I can I can say that I kind of hate two of these movies, and two of them I kind of like. All right, let me guess. I think you I think you hate Just Friends. Is that that is correct. Ones? I hate Just Friends, and I think you hate Why Him. Nope, I actually liked Why Him. Huh. Well, then I'm going to say Bad Santa. That is correct. I, I every couple of years I try to come back to Bad Santa because it's considered classic by a certain segment of people. I just hate it. I think it goes against everything that I like about Christmas movies. Uh, it's just way too simple <laughs> for me, and I, I can't stand it. It makes me even angrier. I think that it it sullies Lauren Graham for me. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah, I, I it's think about it. It just does not work for me at all. I don't care enough about anybody in that movie in any way to spend any time with them it, it's short it's only like 90 minutes long but it feels like it's four hours to me like uh, I, I found myself <laughs> just skipping it where it's like i don't care about anything that happens in it so it yeah it's so this is where my sentimental feelings about christmas it runs right up against that and so i just reject bad yeah. santa i know some people like it i really really do not like it at all i get it i i uh i'm kind of with you i watch it you know, I've seen it a few times. I find Billy Bob Thornton to be incredibly unlikable, just in general. Like I, well, that's interesting never... that you bring that up because I, I like him in a lot of things, and and he plays jerks in a lot of movies, and I like a lot of those. Mm. Maybe it's the Santa thing. I don't know, but I don't dislike Billy Bob Thornton. I just dislike okay. him. Well, I mean, he sullies Santa. I, that's uh, you know, it could be that. Could but be he is a bad that. Santa. Mm-hmm. I think this kind of kicked off uh, this this run of adult holiday films. This was 2003, and everything else in this category comes after it. Um, but I think this kind of like gave people permission to make more adult holiday films in a way, for better or worse. Uh, I, I would say that this and Just Friends are sort of outliers, but I think Why Him and The Night Before both to me kind of fit into almost like the Apatow mold of uh, there's like a, a, a an adult comedy with kind of a heart of gold in it. And Bad Santa doesn't have that. And Just Friends, I, I think, is a little more superficial. And you just that hit it right on the head is exactly why I like two of them and hate the other two. There you go. You just hit it right there. Yep. Right. There's a, a certain heart in the other two that's lacking in uh, Bad Santa and Just Friends. Just Friends, can I, can I just say, as I'm watching this, mm -hmm. You watch Just Friends in a vacuum, you would never, ever think that Ryan Reynolds would become the Ryan Reynolds that we know now. I feel like that movie shows you everything that's bad about Ryan Reynolds. And it's almost like they didn't understand how to use him yet. He just comes off mm -hmm. as just kind of a jerk in general. There's something, an edge about it that he hasn't figured out how to sand down yet to make himself more yeah. palatable. And so you, I just find myself not really liking him. Plus, I hate 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 using fat suits i just think that's awful can't stand that it never works so hated that part. yeah and what i really thought the whole time i was watching it and you touched on this earlier like with the office christmas party where i think that what just friends is is it is an 80s comedy but mm -hmm. they took out all the raunchy parts that would make it an r movie and tried to make it pg-13 and by doing that you removed any hope that any of it will be entertaining. So it, right. it it's trying to reach everyone and reaches no one. If it had just gone R and embraced the, 
the hard R nature of a movie like this than it could be, it may have been a passable 90 minutes to watch. But by removing all that and trying to make the movie stand on its own with story, it's a terrible, terrible movie that I would never, ever watch again. Strong words. I didn't love it either. I thought it was, uh, like I said, very superficial. And I, I, I mean, I find Ryan Reynolds to be that way in general. But I think you're right. He hasn't found writers who write to his uh, personality yet at this point. He's, he's, it's there, you know, he's there, but uh, the material just doesn't work with who he is, I think. Well, good. Then we can, we can leave that there and move on to uh, that, why him. That's been a Christmas. Yeah. Move on from that one. <laughs> uh, this film, I love this film. I had seen it several times. Uh, and, and it's not even necessarily a Christmas movie to me. I just watch it anytime I want. There are a couple films that are like this for me. There's this, and then there's uh, She's Out of My League with Jay Baruchel and Alice Eve, which I, for some reason, these two films, I can just put them on, and Chef, the John Favreau film, put them on anytime. Even if I watch them yesterday, I'll watch it again, and I'll sit through the whole thing. I don't know what it is about them, but uh, they can just be on at any time and they're always engaging to me. But I think there's there's just so much like sweetness in this. You know, again, it's about business. You have uh, a struggling businessman, you know, pushing away the the hand of, of a wealthy businessman and, and, and in this case, battling for a woman, Cranston's daughter. So it kind of has that same theme to it and, uh, but again, just like other Christmas movies, it comes around and it has it definitely has an edge to it, which I love. Uh, it, it's an R-rated film uh, with good reason, but I think that the the adult aspect of it really works for it. And it, it really sort of brings it up to the present day, this this almost classical notion of, of the story. So it's a lot of fun. I, I laugh throughout it and I, I just really enjoyed it. Uh, story credit by Jonah Hill, by the way. Hmm. Yeah, this is a movie I didn't expect to think much of at all. Uh, but I really like Brian Cranston and uh, I really like Zoe Deutsch, uh, mm-hmm. who is just very likable. Uh, I know we're against Nepo babies nowadays, but uh, it's Leah Thompson's daughter. But she's just really likable. Uh, and she was in a Christmas movie last year that I watched. I thought I watched random ones. She's in a movie called Something from Tiffany's, which mm-hmm. is a romantic Christmas movie that uh, isn't very good, but she makes it watchable. So that helps having her play the daughter in this movie. Uh, and what I was thinking is the James Franco character in in The Night Before, the same character uh, as Why Him? He seems a little more nefarious in uh, <laughs> in The Night Before. That's, that's a fair point. But, but uh, yeah, it, it uh, seemed almost like the same guy. And yeah. You're right. It is able to be really raunchy and hard R because it's wears its heart on its sleeve. And yeah. that's the way you have to balance it. And and that's why it's fun. It's a fun watch. And I really like that it has Kiss in it. And I like how they use Kiss at the end of the movie. How they're just standing around in the house at the end, which, which is very, very amusing to me. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. I, I liked seeing Kiss. Um, I did, I did think they used them well, but I also thought it was a little sad. <laughs> That's why it was great for me because it is sad. Like you realize if you take these old men in their makeup and put them in a normal setting, it seems completely insane. It, it's insane. And that's why it was so funny to me. 
Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, as modern films go with a with a Christmas theme, I think it's sort of a, a fun, more adult, updated version of uh, a lot of the stories we've seen in the past. So uh, it's nice. All right, let's go on to The Night Before, which is uh, the fourth nominee in this category. And it's kind of one that went under the radar, I think. But it, it has a lot of fun stuff in it. It's about uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who loses his parents and his best friends, Anthony Mackie and Seth Rogen, uh, take him out every Christmas Eve to uh, make him feel better. And it, it becomes a tradition. They kind of grow up and get on with their lives, and he stays a little stalled in it. Uh, there's a little magical realism in it with Michael Shannon, which I love. And I, every time I see Michael Shannon, I'm just waiting for him to just go off. And he, you know, maybe it's all the weed that he's smoking as this character, but he just keeps it mellow and, and that's okay. Uh, Michael did a great Shannon job. as Ebenezer Scrooge in, in uh, A New Christmas Carol. There you go. Oh my God. You just cast the perfect film. That is awesome. Well, it's the same movie like The Night Before you know, rests on, on its leads as well. And um, it's three likable actors. I know some people don't love Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I really do. I like him. Uh, I like him as an actor. He just seemed like a pretty uh, down-to-earth kind of actor. It's very natural. Uh, even going back to 30 Rock from the Sun, which I thought he was great in uh, being able to, to play that part as a kid. So I, I enjoy him. And uh, so that that's where the movie rises and falls. If you like them, you'll like the movie. If you don't, you probably won't. Uh, but it just hits a lot of familiar notes. You know, it's just you know a very broish kind of movie, <laughs> and that's fine when you're in the mood for that kind of thing. So I, I thought it was funny, and, and I and I laughed a lot of parts of it. And I thought it was nice. And, and again, but it has a, a big heart at the center of it. It's all these guys being stupid, but it's it's the heart that comes through at the end. Uh, the the fantastical element with Michael Shannon, I actually didn't like. That part actually annoyed me because I liked that character when it just seemed like their random drug dealer who just kind of knew all uh, that was just in their lives long enough that he knew them even better than they do themselves. Like I liked that thought of it, like that made the character more interesting. Uh, and I won't spoil it, but the tag they put at the end of, of the character, I actually didn't like, it felt like they were working too hard, but it's fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. If people still watch cable and it existed, if it was on cable, I'd probably watch it. Yeah. I think it's a good pairing with office Christmas party in a way. I mean, I think the two of them together are like a great TBS double feature or something, but you know, as I look over this category, uh, I think you and I kind of align on it again uh, with what we liked and didn't like uh, just because I nominated things that didn't mean I actually enjoyed them. Uh, I just felt like they were fitting. Um, it wasn't Santa until I just watched just friends that I realized that was definitely the case. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you just have to throw something in there, and and uh, there are plenty of again, plenty of oddball movies we can we can uh, throw into the mix next year. But this year, this is what we have, and uh, I take Bad Santa and Just Friends off the board right away. And I think it's pretty clear why him to me gets this award because I think of these four, and maybe of uh, just about everything that's out there now uh, in the past, I don't know, fifteen years. It's just a lot of fun. It, it has a heart. Um, it has great performances. Uh, it's kind of an interesting story. It's a little more unique. It has like a like a tech angle to it, which is very of the time. And hell, even Elon Musk is in it. Uh, I don't know if that sinks it or, or uh, lifts it up in, at this point. But um, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. And, and uh, definitely my favorite oddball Christmas movie of, of these four. 
yeah, we're in agreement again. Wahim is definitely the one out of all these that I would rewatch again sooner than any of the others. Well, sooner than two of them, without a doubt. But uh, but even uh, <laughs> yeah, of all of them, Wahim was the most enjoyable for me. My newfound love of holiday films has has made us really uh, aligned. I love it. It's getting spooky. So, all right, so now we're we're going to jump into the last category, which is uh, a non Christmas movie. It is our best New Year's movie. And I will just say off the bat that the, one of the movies not in the category is New Year's Eve by Gary Marshall, yeah. which is an awful, awful movie. And we'll just forget that ever happened. Uh, but we came up with four movies that I think, that we think are New Year's themed. So the two that I chose are One Harry Met Sally and Strange Days, which is a uh, movie from 96, I believe, directed by Catherine Bigelow. Stars Ray Fiennes and Angela Bassett. And my picks were The Poseidon Adventure uh, from 1972, I want to say. Um, and After the Thin Man from 1936. So <laughs> really uh, going back in the in the Wayback Machine for my picks. You know, what's interesting is I, I know that you think there are no great Thanksgiving films. And I find it hard to find a great New Year's Eve film or a great New Year's film. Uh, I really kind of racked my brain over this because a lot of the things that I looked up, I didn't think they were that great. Um, and and a lot of them don't actually land on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day necessarily. So I may have left you in the lurch on this one because I had the two movies that I really wanted for New Year's movies and I didn't think whether or not there were any others. I left that to you. So I apologize for making you have to scramble to try to find New Year's theme movies. No, it's okay. I I uh, I think the two I found sort of have uh, yeah. No, real you got New Year's it. Eve. You, you found two. Yeah, that was good. So let's. Talk, I want to talk um, about the Poseidon Adventure first because I had never seen the Poseidon Adventure before. So uh, <laughs> all right, you can you can uh, you can get into it. Well, it seems like a lot of these films that we've talked about with Christmas have sort of a disaster element to them in a subtle way, <laughs> and this just goes all out with a disaster. Um, it's a story of a boat that is, uh, I believe it's going from New York to Greece on New Year's Eve and encounters a tidal wave and it capsizes. I don't know, I don't think this is the first film in the 70s that sort of leaned into this disaster element. I, in fact, Airport was in 1970, but then beyond this, there was Towering Inferno and Earthquake and, and all of these other, in fact, sequels to this and everything else. But the 70s really seemed to be a disaster decade. And the Poseidon Adventure takes place on New Year's Eve. Um, it's all set in, in like one day, I think. Uh, but it also has a lot of these disaster films, this included, have these amazing casts of like a million stars, which I love. I mean, this has uh, so many people in it. Uh, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Jack Albertson, who who I love seeing, uh, Shelley Winters, uh, really people of the red buttons, people of that decade, and uh, all people who might have been done by Rich Little in Rich Little's The Christmas Carol. Just about to say that. <laughs> I was just about to say maybe it's uh, Rich Little as red buttons, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it also has has Leslie Nielsen in a in a non-police squad role as the captain of his ship. Right. These are the roles uh, really that he curious. used to Yeah, these are the roles he used to play, which is why he yeah. was so well cast in Airplane and Police Squad. 
but it, yeah, it's it's a fun film. I mean, it it's it's almost like a video game in a way. Like they they have to get from one place to another, and there are all these obstacles in the way. Um, the director Ronald Neem was was actually kind of an early Hollywood cinematographer, so there are a lot of uh, visual elements to this that I think are really good. Um, it's also a little too much leering at the women with the camera, which I don't love, but. Uh, visually it's it's a, just a really fun film and and uh when i think of new year's eve films I, you know you want to go into the new year uplifted and this is just a disaster which i think is counter to many other new year's films and that's part of why i picked it because I, I think it just goes against what you're expecting it to be um could it be set anytime sure yeah but, but that's a good point that, that you, you mentioned because one of the things that i really liked about the movie is that it keeps you guessing you are genuinely surprised by who survives and who doesn't and how it unfolds uh again yeah if you want to see it i won't spoil it but but yeah i, I found myself being genuinely shocked at, at who made it and who didn't but the other thing that i found myself thinking the entire time i was watching this movie is i would have loved to just see a movie with gene hackman and ernest borgnine that's set in a library yeah because good god they just spend the entire movie screaming at each other i was like wow <laughs> Yeah, they go full George C. Scott. It's pretty right. great. Exactly. I don't yeah. know why George C. Scott wasn't in this movie, but yeah. One thing that that jumped out at me that I maybe you can explain this, but I watched it last night again, and it opens with this little boy going to the deck or going to the 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 where the captain is, uh, and he's just battling the rain. He's in this raincoat. He's just covered in water gets in there, hangs out with the captain, cut to Shelly Winters and Jack Albertson just hanging out on the deck of the ship on Chase lounges as Red Buttons runs by. There's no rain, it's sunny. So I was so confused by that edit. It's like, I had to go back and watch it several times because I thought, oh, is this kid, is this like the future? What's going on here? Because it doesn't seem to be raining at all at any point beyond that in the film. My impression, when I was watching is, I think that was like the day before, maybe just jumps to okay. the next day. I don't know, I don't, that, that was my guess. I was willing to go with it. So I actually watched this with my son as well. Uh, I figured it would be fun to watch his actual movie. And then I had to try to uh, not explain to him uh, what what a, what a prostitute was because that was Ernest Borgnine's wife. Uh, right. About her, her gentleman customers. And that wasn't great. I, did, I didn't see that one coming. So uh, <laughs> straight that, that a conversation. So you never know what you're gonna get from a 70s movie. Um, all right, well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about When Harry Met Sally, 1989 Rob Reiner film. Uh, this was your pick. I had a hard time finding the New Year's Eve in it. I know there are two pivotal scenes where Ooh. All right. it is New Year's Eve. Uh, like they're very important to the, to the film, but they're like a minute long. But that's why um, the New Year's Eve scenes are pivotal to the to the entire story. So I I was like, okay, I get it, I get it. But it was it was also like I don't know a hundred minutes of of uh, Billy Crystal not being at New Year's Eve, <laughs> which is fine. But um, man, Billy Crystal supposedly in college that was that was where we started. Yeah. So when this movie was made, I think that Meg Ryan was twenty seven, and Billy Crystal was forty. Billy Crystal barely passes for 33, which is what he's supposed to be like in the the most part of the movie. 
definitely does not pass for 22. That That is, uh, there's not enough soft focus in the world to make us think that Billy Crystal is 22. I really wish he would have said, I'm too young for this shit. <laughs> so yes, you have to suspend some disbelief for when Harry Met Sally to work with you. But uh, I I love when Harry Met Sally. It, it's, it's to me, yeah, it's the, the template for romantic comedies. And it's the, the perfect mix of a whole bunch of things. I think that, the again, the reason this movie works so well is it's a movie made mostly by cynics. Uh, they, oh, yeah. Character, I mean, it's well known the character of Harry is basically based on Rob Reiner uh, mm. and his conversations with Nora Ephron who wrote the script. Uh, and she basically just took his words almost verbatim and put them into the script. And she got a lot of the dialogue from talking to men, just straight up things that they, they would tell her and she would put into the script. So that's why it feels very natural. And even though she is certainly more optimistic, she's actually what the Sally character is kind of based on. It's, it's the two of them actually the conversations they had is where the movie kind of stemmed from but even she believed kind of at the end that none of them really believed that harry and sally would stay together like they all feel like you know that's where the movie had to be because it's a movie but in reality they probably would end up breaking up in like five years uh and so just the fact that they're all kind of realistic and cynical about all of it i think is why they're able to make almost a perfect romantic comedy there's just a deep kind of cynicism to the whole thing, but it's what makes the romantic bits work. That That's what I love about it. Uh, and, and I think all the actors in it are wonderful and it mixes this, like, this light and dark, uh, this pull between these two worldviews. And it's I think it's one of the first movies to really do that, to speak very realistically about how men and women see each other or see the dating scene or, or uh, any of that. Or at least it was new to me when I saw it when I was a kid. Um, the, the other thing I really like about it is that the look of it is really distinct. And part mm-hmm. of that is because they wanted to make a movie set in New York and make a New York movie, but they had to try to find places to film that Woody Allen hadn't already used. Right. So they found themselves just trying to find spots that he hadn't already used in one of his movies, which is why you end up getting these scenes set in interesting places that you didn't really know existed because that's kind of what they had to do to make their own movie, uh, you know, make, make it their own as opposed to just making a, a Woody Allen retread. That's interesting. Yeah. They landed on some, some pretty cool places. I mean, I guess that's the beauty of New York. It's uh, yeah. And that they're all really good friends too. That I mean, Rob Reiner, Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby are actually really good friends. So you get that vibe as well. There's just a, a very natural camaraderie to, to the movie. There's another part in it that I thought was really interesting. I was watching stuff about it. And there's a, a scene kind of in the middle of the movie where they're, uh, where Billy Crystal says, Harry says to Sally, that they're going to talk in a certain weird way to each other. Uh, just yeah. in, in this way. So they're doing it. But when he continues it, uh, he says, but I would be happy to partake of your pecan pie. Uh, that line was ad-libbed and you can see in the movie that when he says it, she laughs and she looks over and she's actually looking at, at Rob Reiner. She's looking at the director because she's not expecting uh, that. And she doesn't know what to do. So she kind of looks to her, her right to kind of see if he's going to call a cut or not. And he doesn't. So she turns back and she continues the scene in the moment. And and so that's when there's a certain playfulness and lightheartedness to the movie. You can see they all genuinely like each other and it, it it just carries through in the movie. I, I've always liked it. I've watched it more times than I can count, and it never really gets old for me. 
Yeah, it's fun. I, I think that Nora Ephron script is like critical to it, um, as most of her scripts are. As I was watching it, I was thinking about all the things that came after it that just like recall it so much. Like uh, the, the first thing that came to mind was he's just not that into you. Very much like born of when Harry met Sally and even Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Like, I think that has a lot of when Harry met Sally in it with uh, the therapy scenes and, and just like this couple not being on the same page. But there are a ton of things that that were inspired by this film. And, and I'd seen it before, but I hadn't really thought about what the importance of it was beyond it. So uh, it was really cool to rewatch it. But our words, it definitely created the modern romantic comedy and, and you've seen it a million times since. And that's the thing with something like this, where you see it so many different ways in, in so many other stories that you forget why the original is the original. And when you go back and watch it again, you realize this is just really good. And it's not too long, which is important too. It's only like 95 minutes, maybe an hour, 40 minutes. Doesn't overstay its welcome. It's got the nice little interviews that kind of break up the story. And uh, mm -hmm. that that's what's best about it. It knows that it's not some kind of grand statement, that it's just a nice, sweet little movie uh, with, a, with a dark side that, that gets in and out. Well, you said Harry Met Sally was, when Harry Met Sally was short and uh, we'll move on to Strange Days, which was not short. This thing is like two and a half hours long. Not short. <laughs> it went from one new year to the next new year. Is that, is that, is that what it was? <laughs> it really felt that way. Uh, I had trouble with this film. Um, it's a Catherine yeah. Bigelow film. I, I love her uh, script by James Cameron and, and it's James Cameron at his Cameronist. Uh, it's it's kind of nuts. But it was it was kind of fun to watch, but I I don't know. I, I struggled with it a little bit. It starts with sort of a POV shot, which took me ironically took me out of it a little more at the beginning. I almost found it like feeling like people felt when they watched the Blair Witch Project and they would get sick, like kind of motion sick from the camera shaking. I mean, it's it's an interesting film. I, I think it's very uh, ahead of its time with the VR stuff in particular. I mean, these days that's that's everywhere. So yeah, it, it was still fun to watch once I got into it, but it wasn't my favorite of all of these, even though I love Catherine Bigelow. I did struggle with this one just a little bit all the way through. So I hadn't seen this movie in probably 20 years. Uh, and I picked it because I knew you like Catherine Bigelow, but also because I remember it kind of blowing my mind when I saw it years ago. And yeah, so I think that the premise of it and, and the idea of it still kind of blows my mind. It's just not that great of a movie, almost better as a premise than, than uh, the actual follow through. But the, the core ideas of it are still pretty fascinating. Yeah. So for those who don't know, it's the, the idea that um, the main character, what he does is he sells other people's memories. So they wear these headsets where they are able to film their own experiences in real time. And then people buy these experiences as tapes that they can then live through in VR. So you can live through being a criminal or being a porn star or whatever it may be, whatever you get off on, you can experience it through that. And he sells these on the black market. So that that's the, the premise of the movie, which is really interesting. And the reason uh, it's a New Year's movie is it takes place not only on New Year's, but at on the new millennium. So it takes place in, it was, it was made in 95, but it's filmed in the for the year 2000 when 99 is becoming 2000. Right. So there's all this fear of what would happen when 2000 happened, whether or not the world would collapse or there would be worldwide chaos. And uh, 
What I liked about it is that almost every movie that touches on New Year's Eve takes place in New York, and this one takes place in L.A. So uh, you get to see the idea, well, probably not what really happens on New Year's in L.A., but it, at least it's on the other coast. I think that was interesting, too. Yeah, it's basically the purge. Yeah, <laughs> it's, so it's pretty dark. I, I think there are some good points to it. I, I, it's very ahead of its time. I mean, I think sort of an analog to it these days would be the creator, uh, which just came out. It's kind of like the technology. I mean, that's here, but more of the future and, and the, the fears of it. And uh, yeah, it feels like a very 90s film. It's a very 90s uh, film, you're right. And, and, that, and it's, I can see why Cameron probably didn't direct it, that he wrote the story, but he wouldn't have directed it because yeah. I'm not sure that it's necessarily something he thought would be good enough to make on his own. And I, but I think Catherine Bigelow, I think she takes the premise and in a lot of ways makes it watchable. I think it's just too long. Mm -hmm. But her work is really interesting in the movie. I actually liked the opening of the POV because to me, it mm -hmm. just was like, what the hell are we watching here? Like it was just a, uh, right. and again, it maybe went on a little too long, like, like the movie itself, but just dropping you into that without any pretext to figure out what the hell's going on. I just thought it was a really interesting choice on, on how to start a movie. Mm -hmm. uh, so you so you immediately feel off kilter, like you're not sure what you're watching. And that's kind of the whole movie because the, the whole movie yeah. is that everyone feels off kilter. It's a future that's uncertain and that no one really knows what the hell they're doing. Uh, and so I, I think that's deliberate. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think she's a really good director and I think she salvages a lot of it where in other hands it could have been almost unwatchable because it's just kind of batshit crazy yeah it really is <laughs> uh it's certainly batshit crazy uh and everybody's sweaty in it i don't understand that i mean i know la is warm but yeah their, their idea of the future was was very uh was very sweaty i mean maybe their fear was also of climate change right i don't know uh, yeah i also forgot that julia lewis was in this movie, and she was also on christmas vacation so that was a strange juxtaposition yeah um all right, let's move on. This is our last film. Uh, uh, we've been going for a while here. So After the Thin Man from 1936. This was my pick because I just love the Thin Man films. I love William Powell. I love Myrna Loy. Um, these are some of my favorite films. So anytime I get an opportunity to throw one in a mix, I will. Uh, I also, part, of also, part of why I picked this was um, Jimmy Stewart's in it. In, quite a different role than It's a Wonderful Life. So I thought it was good to uh, include him to show a little range. But I just love this film. It's, it, it has the, the thin man formula of there's a crime to solve. Uh, Nick Charles is on the case. He brings everybody together into one room at the end and gets the, the culprit to confess. But that never gets old for me. It's just super fun. And there's so much great banter between Nick and Nora um and it's uh it's very much of its time but i feel like it also could be remade in a way like all of these thin man movies i feel like they they have such a great formula and an energy to them that they could be modern day films um so i don't know who so, would uh take over for myrna Loy, but in my mind i always imagine if you were going to remake this you could cast robert downey jr in that role that it would work i could see that yeah this has a certain kind of like frivolous uh, banter that that would fit into the role so anyway if, if someone was trying to remake it that that was always my thought when i watched them but so this is, speaks to how good the thin man movies are and, and even this one but i started watching this and 
my nine-year-old walks in and sits down and we start watching it together and he enjoyed it. But then we had to stop watching it uh, for whatever reasons. And I went back to it the next day and my father came over. And so all of us were watching it together. So like my nine-year-old, myself, and my 80-year-old father were all watching after the Thin Man. And that's because it's great. And so it really doesn't matter how old you are. That it, it just uh, it is a very enjoyable movie that holds up. That. Yeah, it's just it's just, uh, I think that speaks to to how fun it is. I love that. It really does. I mean, the these films are so festive too. I mean, there's always a Christmas or a New Year's Eve or something in it. Um, they're just a lot of fun. Uh, I think this is the this is the second one after yeah, Thin Man or the third one. And there, I think there are six of them. And then there was actually a TV show for a while. But uh, I just think these are classic films that, you know, like you just pointed out, anybody can watch them and love them. And I think that speaks to the strength of the writing and the acting. And, and uh, I just love these films. I, I'm so happy I got to include one. All right. So let's vote. Let's, uh, let's hear what your pick was for new year's movies so based on our conversations i'm I'm sure it won't surprise you uh i'm the one that wedged when harry met sally into the category so uh i'm I'm definitely going to pick that one it's it's just one of my favorite movies and uh whether or not you believe that it fits for new year's i think it does and so it it went pants down yeah i mean if i had to pick a second it would be after the thin man which i I enjoy just and in some ways they're similar in, in in certain ways um, you know, both the idea of a male and female character kind of being polar opposites, but working together um, and the way they interplay off of each other. Uh, and so in, in some ways, I, I see them as similar type of movies and, and I really like them both. But I, I have always liked When Harry Met Sally. So When Harry Met Sally fits in, if my criteria for a Christmas film is that Christmas needs to somehow move the plot along, I think New Year's Eve does move the plot along in when Harry met Sally in a way. So, uh, and not to therefore... get into arguments about stuff, but I, I think that there's just as much New Year's in when Harry met Sally as there is in After the Thin Man. So, oh, yeah, maybe there is. <laughs> That's true. But there's probably, uh, just as much in the apartment as well. Um, so we're going to diverge again because I am going to go with After the Thin Man. Uh, I just love it. I think there is enough of a New Year's Eve uh, element to it. Um, but of the four here, it's the one that speaks to me the most. And I uh, I just think the world of it. So it's going to get my vote for best New Year's Eve picture of these holiday bonus episode Oscars. Um, so we did it. We're wow. done. <laughs> that was almost as long as Strange Days. That took, that took a long time. <laughs> We so we had planned to do this for an hour, and I think it's coming on three hours at this point. Uh, this is going to be a, a long one to edit, but that's okay. <laughs> you, you know, obviously we missed a lot of things because there are just so many, and I think that sets it up for doing this every year. So uh, I'm excited to see what we bring next year. And I will work on trying to find better uh, oddball holiday films, so we never have to sit through a possible just friends again. Well, I think there will probably be some this year, so uh, maybe they'll make the cut. Um, All right. Well, as always, thank you, Mike, for uh, doing this with me. And thank you, everyone, for listening. If you have a minute, follow us, rate and review us uh, wherever you get podcasts. And 
You can also check out our Substack at reoscar.substack.com. Uh, we're on Letterboxd, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. So check us out there. And yeah, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week, and we're going to talk about 1947's Academy Awards, uh, which was quite a year. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time. So long. Bye.